Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, Larry Keene from National Shooting Sports Foundation. Larry, are you, are you cool if we go through a couple things here first? Sure. They don't, like, they don't necessarily involve you. That's all right. But I'm along feel, for the ride. feel free to weigh in. Because we got to do a couple of things, like a lot, like uh, some listener email. Got to take care of some business. Yeah. House cleaning. Giannis had used the word. Uh-oh. Yeah. He had used the word accidental discharge. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, particularly service members, wrote in to say that you can't say that. Negligent. They go by negligent discharge. There's no. There's no accidents. Yeah. They, they, yeah. Military good. dudes, very emphatic on that point. Due to your own negligence. Yeah. Right. You don't get to say that. They just cut yeah. right to they cut right to negligence. <laughs> in the I like it. Uh, in a prior life, I uh, defended gun companies in product liability cases. And so the the term accidental discharge or AD was used in those cases, and that was often you know, the firearm discharge because of the negligence or the um of the owner or the, the user, not because of any design defect or manufacturing defect, but they would typically be called in the legal parlance as uh, ADs or accidental discharge. But I think the point is well made that it's really negligence on the part of the person using the firearm. Yeah. It, it, 
doesn't go off by itself. Somebody has to pull the trigger. Several Marines wrote in about it. Yeah. It must be something they it must be something they talk about a fair bit. Ask the master gunny sergeant. It is drilled into your head in boot camp. <laughs> is that right? You are responsible for the terminal resting place of every round that leaves your rifle. And you are a maggot. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a maggot. Uh, I, I like that the terminal resting place of every round that leaves your rifle. Yep. Yeah. Terminal resting place. That sounds macabre. <laughs> we have a we have a very dark sense of humor as Marines. Another thing we got a lot of people writing in about. We're talking about button bucks. Um, and people asking, like, does a button buck shed anything? Meaning an antler. Yeah. Good question. I have no idea. Yeah. So typically not, but a lot of guys, it, we had read this thing where we had read this thing where they're saying like it hasn't been known to happen in the state of Virginia, but it's known to happen in other places. But then we had people, including a lot of biologists and deer specialists, write in to say it certainly happens. It happens in Virginia, and a lot of guys emailed us. Fo- I shouldn't say a lot. A handful of guys emailed us photos of button buck sheds, which looks like a little bone disc. Kind of like a button. Yeah. Some guys actually wrote in who were doing a deer trapping study while listening to the podcast and started examining some button bucks. And they had some findings too. But it says that like early born fawns who have very good nutrition and tend to be the larger size button bucks will actually form a little thing that they cast off. But the antler, I don't even want to call it an antler, the little nubbins, the disc that is cast off, it doesn't seem to cast it off in a way that's tied to photo period. It's like photo period is length of day and photo period drives so much, you know, drives so much of nature's day length. Like, like things are going to happen within a window of time centered around day length and then, and then like micro factors will come in. Micro factors can also influence timing, but there's a lot of natural cycles that happen in accord, you know, in accordance to length of day. And he said, normal bucks seem to lose their antlers due to photo period. They think it's linked to photo period changes, but this is just linked to what's, whatever's going on in the, the, the growth and how much gets there and when it starts growing a new antler for button bucks. Um, and he said, he, this guy also talked about, you ever hear the Doppelkopf syndrome? Nope. That's <laughs> a new one I made. Nope. So a deer biologist is talking about this. He says, unlike adult antlers, which are grown and shed based on changing photo period, infant antlers are controlled by maturity and hormonal development and not tied to photo period. If any antler ever fails to shed, Doppelkopf syndrome, the new antler grows around the original antler from the outside rim of the pedicle. He says, picture your meat grinder plugged up with silver skin, squirting meat out around the blockage. The resulting grossly misshapen antlers would be obvious on any deer that failed to shed those antler buttons. Look at that. I like it. Good analogy. Um, another big thing in the news, tons of people wrote in about the guy, a jogger in Fort Collins. Did you guys hear about this? Yeah. A jogger in Fort Strangle Collins. Strangle the mountain, mountain yeah. line. He's jogging along, senses something coming from behind him. It's an 85-pound juvenile mountain lion. It attacks him, and the guy chokes it out. 
That is a will to live. Strangles it. Walks three miles down to a trailhead, drives to a hospital, you know, talking to the police about what went on. They send, he's got stuff that he wanted them to retrieve. When they go up to inspect the site, they go up there, dead mountain lion laying there. Wow. Every guy likes to think he'd do that. Yeah. But most wouldn't. Strangled it. I like to think he was listening to Stranglehold. Come on, <laughs> come on, come on, come on, baby. Uh, speaking of all that, a in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, you guys hear this story? Nope. There. Yeah, crazy story. So you, you guys know what ginseng is, right? As my my question as we get into the story is: This now considered an edible for the bear? That, that's yeah, yeah. There's a lot. This story is one of those <laughs> stories that makes its own gravy, right? Yeah, kinda. So, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, Tennessee. Some guys are out. It seems to be. I don't want to like. I don't want to. You know. I mean, the guy's dead, but I don't. Wanna, I don't want to condemn the guy without knowing. But it's it, it. It. The insinuation is that they were hunting ginseng. Digging ginseng illegally. And ginseng is like a medicinal root. Daniel Boone was in the ginseng business and once lost a uh, fortune's worth of ginseng. And it was one of the many things that uh, seemed to routinely destroy Daniel Boone financially. But anyways, these guys are hunting in a national, hunting ginseng or dig, digging ginseng in a national park where it's illegal to dig ginseng. One of the guys goes missing. There's two guys. One of them goes missing. His buddy can't find him. They find him later eaten by a bear. Turns out that he was scavenged by a bear and actually and had actually died of a meth overdose. Pretty badly scavenged by the bear. They had to identify his body by his tattoos. He had a skull and crossbones tattoo, an ACDC tattoo, confederate battle flag tattoo that said it's a redneck thing um but i wonder if the bear was shrewd that he would place the needles as a cover-up don't know and then uh marcus brought up the idea what some people brought up was like what happens to a bear who's ingested is the bear tripping now isn't it edible oh is it edible um can we talk about one more thing in the news, Larry? Absolutely. Okay. I'm still trying to get my mind around a, a meth-head bear. Yeah. Spe- uh, on a not nearly, on a not at all funny note, um, but speaking of bears, Wyoming just released a really extensive report um, on the death of an elk hunting guide in Wyoming who was killed by a grizzly bear. Uh, the guy, a, a guide, a Wyoming guide was guiding a client from Florida for elk. And while they were butchering, um, while they were butchering an elk, a sow grizzly and a male cub uh, charged them, charged them coming uphill at them. And the bear grabbed the first attack, the guide, um, the Wyoming guide who had bear spray on his belt. He had a bear spray canister on his belt and he had a 10 millimeter pistol on his backpack. The client had a bottle of uh, a can of pepper spray in his backpack. So they get attacked. Suddenly, the guide gets 
in a skirmish with the bear. The client tries to retrieve the guide's handgun, but doesn't know how to operate it. The bear turns and bites the client on the foot. They get into a struggle. The client tries to throw the handgun to the guide. It falls short. The bear then turns back and attacks the guide. This is where the story is so strange. Is that the client's out, but he's been bitten on the foot. And the last he sees of the guide, the guide is still on his feet, struggling with the bear, and the client leaves. Goes to the horses, rides a horse 400 yards to a hilltop to make a phone call, waits for a helicopter to come, and he never goes back. They, wow. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a I mean, the, the report doesn't draw, you know, the report, it's, it's an exhaustive report, but it doesn't say things that you imagine it might say about what that means. Um, the next day they, they, they found the guide and he had, uh, the guide was dead. Um, in their analysis of footprints and what happened, empty bear spray can and his body and other things, they believe that the guide did spray the bear with pepper spray. It ended the attack, but then succumbed to his injuries. Wow. <clears throat> Just a heart, like kind of a heartbreaking <clears throat> story. <clears throat> wow. Okay. Some, some lessons to be learned there about, we always talk about where our, you know, bear spray is located on our body, where the pistols are on our bodies, where you lay your rifle down, you know, as you're doing something like that in grizzly bear country. Yeah. I just ordered, am ordering. What do you, what's the one you, you have the airframe? Yeah. An airframe. Uh, yeah. I was just ordering one of those. And we got into talking about, um, got into talking about revolvers versus semi-autos. What I was saying is like at work, we got a lot of guys who don't have a lot of familiarity with firearms. I feel like anyone who's watched a Western can understand the basic functioning of a revolver. Right. You know what I mean? And that Definitely. Was, it, but this is before I even read the report. But I was like just articulating this to John Edwards over at his gun shop over at Schnee's. It was like my sort of, I'm like, I just feel like for us when we're out working, um, up in Alaska, it's just like a thing that it's just easy to explain to people who don't know, who don't shoot. Um, so that's what that's what I'm fixing to get now, Larry. Sorry, no need to apologize. NSSF, uh, like when someone at, like you're at a party, or you're at a cocktail party, and someone says, "What's that? What's the NSSF? What do you tell them?" We are the Firearms Industries Trade Association. And then the next question is, what's the difference between you and the NRA? And the elevator speech is, the dividing line is the checkout counter. As a trade association, we're focused on the bar stock being delivered to the factory to make the firearm, to the sale, really? to, yeah, to the sale to the consumer at retail. <laughs> and that's, our, that's what we're focused on. That's, that's our core mission, to help the industry uh, grow and prosper. Uh, and the dividing line between us and the NRA is the is the is the checkout counter. They represent owners. gun owners, cons consumers, 
from the industry's point of view, end users, and we represent the industry. You, uh, do industry people are members of the NSSF? The companies are members. Um, so in our membership, we have about, I think the number is about 10,000 members now. It, you know, it ebbs and flows, goes up after a lot of people join when they come to SHOT Show. Um, so our members are manufacturers, uh, distributors, retailers, firearms, ammunition, scopes, and basically anything you can put in, on, around, or through a gun for hunting, shooting, increasingly for per, you know personal protection, self-defense, big part of the market. Um, big companies, the biggest names, you know, the, uh, everybody knows household names to smaller companies, smaller manufacturers that, you know, uh, most people have never heard of. Yeah. You guys They're do... the 10 by 10 booths at the SHOT Show. You see the small little booths, but, you know, all the big guys started out as small companies at, at some point. I think a lot of people's familiarity comes from SHOT Show. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a huge event, as you know, we, as we were talking before. Um, it's 2,400 exhibitors, 13 miles of exhibit space. And if you went to every single booth at the show, you could spend 22 seconds at each one. So it's it's a massive. Uh, whenever people go for the first time, they are their reaction is always the same. They're blown away. They're shocked. They cannot believe the breadth and scope and size of the shot show. Oh, it's it, overwhelming, man. Yeah, it's big. You feel like you can never. There's so much. You feel like you can never get like can look at something because there's so much. You know, you almost want, you yeah. almost need to like force yourself to focus for a second. You do, yeah. yeah. I mean, you we tell to, people yeah, you, you have to, have to have a plan. Yep. And we have like apps for people, for the attendees. We're, you know, dealers, buyers. You know, plan your show, plan who you want to see. You can schedule it. You know, the app, uh, you know, is a digital map. It will tell you how to get from point A to point B. You just plug in the, the booth and the booth number, and it'll tell you how to get there. Um, and you, you got to plan your time. Otherwise, you just, you'll get lost, you know. <laughs> In all of the stuff you see uh, on all of the various booths, but we try to segment the show. Um, you know, we have the law enforcement tactical section. We've got firearms and ammunition. We've got other areas where you know we have a new product center. Um, so if you're looking for new products, that's where you would go, and that's a big popular place. And then we have you know areas where you know it's hunting clothing and things like that. And uh, so we try to segment the show so you can be in a particular area and uh, you know okay I'm gonna if you're a buyer, I'm going to talk to these firearms guys. Then I'm going to go over here. I'm going to talk to these clothing guys that, um, you know, and place orders. So nothing, there's no, you know, sales, direct sales that take place. No, certainly no cash sales. That's not allowed. So it's booking orders um, and people looking at, um, you know, at products. It, it's really a, a primary, primarily now the show is really a new product introduction and marketing show. Yeah. Um, it's the largest gathering of outdoor media in the world. Uh, it's if you took out the knives, it would be the largest knife show in the world. If you took was out, is that right? Really? Yep. Uh, if you took out, blows, oh, the thing that blows my mind walking around there is uh, yeah, all the government agencies, foreign, oh, yeah. foreign government oh, yeah. buyers. We you hear people talking every language on the planet. I think it's something like a hundred countries. Um, we've got. Uh, Foreign military, foreign law enforcement, foreign exhibitors, foreign attendees from all over the place. So we, we've even had people come from Pakistan. Um, 
with you know people from all over Europe, you know New Zealand, uh, Australia, etc. Um, we've got uh, lots of U.S. military buyers there from all uh, branches and SOCOM folks there. They're the ones that can't have their picture taken. <laughs> a funny story about that, but uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Governor Romney uh, came to see the show before, or right around the time he, or just a little bit before he announced he was running, and he wanted to come see the show, and we took him around, walked him around the floor for a while, uh, and and uh, there were some guys, in, uh, military guys, <laughs> they were in uniform, you know, it's like, hey, let's get a picture with you and Governor Romney. No, 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 we can't, we can't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're not here. That's not. <laughs> how much is the? I don't want to dwell too much on Shot Show, but how much is Shot Show? How much was it impacted by the war on terror? Yeah, you know, because because we've been like engaged in, you know, we've been engaged in multiple yeah theaters, right? For long time. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say Seven, that seventeen years, you know. The, the war on terror impacted the market, and that impacted the show. So it wasn't like a direct impact, but yeah, there's but it no. It just yeah. seems like it's been such a um, like just a bewildering amount of new technologies, oh, and yeah. things driven by, you know, driven yeah. by the, you know the fact that I mean, even though most Americans kind of lose sight of the fact, the fact that we've been at war for so long. Yeah, the, uh, the fastest growing part of the show is the tactical law enforcement show. Tactical law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's by far the fastest growing part of the show. And I think that's a reflection of the changing market. And I think that that is driven in part due to um, people that like Mark that served, that went overseas, came back, left the military. And, you know, uh, if they weren't before, they, you know, they like to go target shooting, hunting. And so, but I think that helps explain the growth of the modern sporting rifle. Uh, popularity. A lot of the people that our survey show that uh, about half of the people that purchase them are current or former military law enforcement. And yeah. it's uh, actually we have a thing on our website about the history of the rifle in America, and that that rifle would become popular is really predictable uh, because it's that's always happened through the history of the United States. After you know people serve, they come back, they take up target shooting. They're familiar with that platform. Uh, it's comfortable, they like it. And so if you look at the growth in the market, you know, uh, after every conflict, you'll see, you know, certain types of rifles become very popular. Yeah, yeah it, people forget that all rifles were originally a military rifle, yeah, right? it, it's, Almost all? It is, it's cyclic. So if you look back through the history of wars, after you come back from World War One, everyone was using bolt-action rifles. Well, that's the rifle that they were familiar with, and that's the one they wanted to take back into the woods with them. After World War II, they were using repeating rifles. They were using semi-automatic rifles, and that's what they want to take back in with them. And after Korea and after Vietnam, you started to see the rise in the use of scopes, which before then was kind of antithetical. You know, people at the time, well, if you're going to use a scope, you're going to be poaching. So as you kind of see these, oh, really? these adoptions mm -hmm. of these technologies, as they kind of go yeah. back and forth. And it used to be that, you know, for a while, civilian technology would kind of drive... Mm -hmm military technology when it comes to small arms and then it was the then it was the push that develop of new firearms for the military would push back out into the civilian market we've kind of seen that kind of go back around mm -hmm. again the military is looking at a lot more commercial off-the-shelf items uh so you're seeing the kind of that that cyclic right. nature of that happening over and over yeah it's not a one-way street um 
but, but to your point, the Mauser bolt-action rifle, I mean, that is now considered the ubiquitous deer hunting rifle, right? Like no gun control group say, well, that's, that's a weapon of war, right? But, you know, it was at one point. It doesn't mean it can't be used for, for hunting and, other, and target shooting, et cetera. So, you know, uh, the military does buy commercial products and, uh, you know, so it goes, it goes both ways. I mean, consumers see what the military and law enforcement use and they think, well, it's good enough for them. That's what I want. And so that, that drives a lot of what happens in the commercial market. What I want to do, I want to return to this for sure. What I want to do is I want to do kind of um, like a, cover a bunch of ground and do a walk through on a bunch of issues. Sure. But I think, like, particularly things that I know that our audience asks about around firearms issues, legislation issues, um, and try to, like, do quick snapshots of stuff. And, and one thing, because being here in D.C., and you guys have some familiarity in this space, one thing, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but we've talked a lot about, uh, on this show, we've covered a lot about Land and Water Conservation mm-hmm. Fund. And it's kind of this story that doesn't really go away right now. You guys are involved. Yeah. You, you guys are in some way. Yeah. Like, what is it? Do, what's your opinion? Like, what's your organization's opinion on it? Well, we think, um, you know, one of the challenges for the health of the industry is, you know, we need hunters to have access and opportunity. And, and that takes many forms, right? Time, uh, but also access to to land, particularly out west, where there's a lot of public land. And so opening up access to public lands for hunting, target shooting, fishing, et cetera, is important. Um, so uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund, we think, is important. We support uh, the land, the public lands package that um, is in the Senate currently. We wish that it had passed at the end of last year, but we you know, remain hopeful that we finally get it done. But so we support that S-74 um, they filed cloture on it, so it come up for a vote uh, any day, you know, real soon, and we think it passes overwhelmingly. Yeah, it seems to have a lot of it seems to have a lot of bipartisan support. But it then- might even pass on unanimous consent, right? So, oh, gotcha. there was the vote to, um, yesterday afternoon was like ninety nine to one, so it, it'll pass, and then we'll see what happens in the house. So, uh, hopefully, it, it passes as well. But it, that, we think it's important. Um, we support it. We have for quite a while, particularly within uh, LWCF, the making public lands provision is something we think is very important. So, you know, to, to allow, to have a funding source to purchase um, rights of way and easements, et cetera, um, of private land to get access to landlocked federal land to open it up um, for more access for hunting and, and shooting. So what's your what's your litmus like as as an organization? What is the NSSF's litmus on how to fall on issues? So like yeah. you take something like the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So your perspective on it is um, access is good for hunters. Hunters are good for the industry. I mean, is that good for conservation? Right. So I, I mean, so we go back. It all starts from you know uh, sort of the core function of NSSF. Our mission is to promote, protect, and preserve hunting and the shooting sports. That's mm-hmm. right. And from the perspective of the industry, as the industry trade association. So that's how we, you know, that's, that's our sort of prism through which we view things. And so access, and there's no question, access and opportunity are, are critical to 
promoting, protecting, and preserving hunting and the shooting sports. As we all know, hunting has been on a slow decline uh, for a number of years. And so you know, we have a lot of programs that, and initiatives to try to address that and, and bend that curve, um, like the one we just started, uh, plus one. But in terms of looking at legislation, the devil's always in the details, but conceptually, you know, we want to see more public land opened up for hunting and shooting sports. It's a big issue out west. Um, so, you know, we try to balance equities. We also got to be, re, you know, sort of figure out what, what is doable, what is achievable legislatively. Um, you know, you can, you know, I always had the pony on my Christmas list, but I didn't always get the pony. Yeah, <laughs> In yeah. fact, I never got the pony, so. You bring up the West, but I think it's important for people to realize, I don't think there's a, I think I heard, I'm pretty sure this is right. There's not a county in the United States that hasn't had LWCF projects on it. I, you know, I don't I know. Think that's that, true. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, for sure. like muni yeah. municipal swimming pools, like like yeah. all kinds, yeah. of, all kinds yeah. of outdoor access programs. So th there's a thing, uh, Pittman Robertson Fund. It feels like this has been like the year of the Pittman Robertson Fund, where I feel growing up. You know, in it, like without realizing you're doing it, anyone that buys guns or ammunition, certain ar archery right. equipment, like you're like paying into the fund without yes. knowing it. Because when you get your receipt, it doesn't say right. there's it doesn't say that there's a 13 or 14 percent tax built into it. So you can kind of like live your life as a shooter and, and not hunter, realize and not realize you're doing it. But I don't know why. I just feel like there's some like tipping point where there's awareness. And it's probably it's probably a smart move. It's just like it seems to be in in my world. There seems to be a lot more awareness now and a lot more reporting on the existence of the fund. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear you think that's the case. You know, the industry has tried to promote that message. We've worked with Fish and Wildlife Service. In fact, a couple of years ago, probably more than a couple now, uh, it was the 75th anniversary of the Pittman Robertson. <laughs> Excise tax uh, being put in place uh, to try to, you know, so there was efforts to put information or flyers and stickers and, on the boxes. And then, you know, so when people purchased it, they understood and knew that. Um, so I think that's hopefully bearing some fruit, trying to uh, push that message. The taxes, you know, it's 10% on handguns, 11% on long guns and ammunition. And it's been in place since 19. Well, the tax actually. There's not one of them that's. It's not. There's not one that's 13. There's not a 13 percent part of it. Uh, not on guns and ammunition. Oh, okay. I mean, there's also excise tax on a fishing tackle, but that goes into a different fund. Yeah, Ar archery. Um, archery may be higher. Uh, I'm not sure, but um, so <clears throat> that, that, the tax actually existed. Uh, what happened was the industry asked to have the you know have the funds. Um, be used for conservation because at the time, if you look at the history, wildlife uh, was not doing well in the United States. No, and we're so, in the, the depths of despair, right, as Jim Poswitz right. says. So, you know, the industry helped fund through loopholes and, and others, um, you know, the creation of wildlife management as a science. And that was funded by the industry. Uh, and then the tax, you know, we said, use this tax dollars for this purpose. And I think it's now over $12 billion or thereabouts. Um, uh, and it's the pri you know, pri one of the primary sources of conservation funding in the United States, as you know. It's collected by Treasury, uh, distributed 
they give it to the Fish and Wildlife, goes into the trust fund, which we've learned actually isn't technically a trust fund, I guess, on the sequestration battle but uh, from a couple of years ago. But then that is distributed back out to the states on the formula, land mass, hunting sales, hunting how, license how sales. Is it ex- how is the tax, like what actually is taxed along the way or what point, like at the end it's, of the year? No, it's, uh, it used to be that the manufacturer had to pay the tax twice a month and three times in September for firearms and ammunition. When, other, when the tax was supplied to other goods like archery and such, uh, they got to pay quarterly. So a number of years ago, actually, we um, got legislation passed to change the payment schedule to quarterly like everybody else. Um, uh, and so, but it's paid basically at the, with the first shipment by the manufacturer um, is, is when the tax is, is owed. And so the manufacturer's got to, you know, submit the tax receipts to treasury to the tax and trade bureau ttb they pay based off of sales or what they make no sales so um i mean it gets a little complicated but some sales are exempt some uh from the tax and um it it gets very you know like any tax tax law gets complicated but basically it's a commercial sale of firearms and ammunition products at the manufacturer level is when the taxes do sales to the uniform uh, branches are not uh, that those sales are not taxable um Sales to state law enforcement is not taxed, but but oddly, sales to federal law enforcement is taxable. Huh? Which I don't I don't know why how that came to be, but that's the way it is. Like you said, so, it's complexity. So, but it's basically you know, uh, and as you say, my, you know, the taxes baked into the cost of the goods, just like all other costs: insurance, electricity, labor. You know, it's, it's reflected in the price of the goods, but at the end of the day, the, you know, that is the consumer or the hunter or the shooter is paying the tax uh, in an indirect fashion. We like to, uh, you know, tell hunters that you're, you're funding conservation, right? So they under, that they're connected to it. But to your point, uh, target shooters, people who never go afield, um, are are actually paying the lion's share of the tax because oh, yeah you guys you guys did that study but and, 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 like, like, roughly eighty percent and, and I've yeah. heard people in the industry think it's higher than eighty percent intuitively um, you can see it but I would never have guessed that that yeah. would be the breakdown so, so think about it this way Steve this past hunting season I went out I I killed two deer this year so I I killed one with my bow and I killed one with my rifle I probably used maybe three let's say five rounds to check the zero on my rifle and I put one round through the deer I killed. So that's what six rounds max that I used through my rifle to you're hunt. Hunting, and you're hunting with Granddaddy's rifle. No, hunting with my with my <laughs> old Remington seventeen seven hundred, you know, thirty odd six. Um, but when I go to the range on a weekend and fire my pistols or fire my AR fifteen, I'm starting at a minimum of a hundred rounds. Yeah. I'm buying a hundred rounds right across the counter, and I'm going into the range, and that's what I'm gonna. That's the minimum start of what I'm gonna play with that day. So you think you figure I used six rounds to hunt deer this year. I'll use, let's say I go to the range once a month. I'm going to use a minimum of 1,200 rounds through each of my firearms. Yeah. So that's the money that's going towards conservation. Yeah, we talked about it recently because hunters, I was saying like there's awareness about Pittman-Robertson, right? And I think, like, and it was funny because hunters like to vocalize about it. Or like, we, like to, we like to virtue signal. Exactly. <laughs> around Pittman-Robertson. When they're looking at that number, is like 80% of that money is... is we, yeah, we did that. 70, yeah, 78% of that money is tied to um, yeah, recreational shooting. 
And the license sales, uh, you know, helps fund conservation. That, oh, oh, for sure. But, so I mean, that's just, why we say that. hunters are the original green movement. Hunters yeah. are the original conservationists. They're the yeah. ones paying for it. Which is a fact that has become lost on a lot of people now. Right. Because I, I think that because some of the systems, the systems have been in place for, the systems right. have been in place for so long that people lose, that people lose sight of it. Um, like I said, when I, was, I had no awareness. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had no awareness of how, right. like your, <laughs> how your state fish and game agency, which does all the work they right. do from disease research to law enforcement, I had no idea of where that money came from. Right. You kind of live like a pretty nice life in this country, just hunting and fishing away. Yeah. With no idea, like the, the machinations, right? That it goes, it, goes on behind the scenes. Goes on. Um, it's, uh, we're really proud of it. I mean, it, you know, it's, because think about it, that's, 10, 11% off the bottom line. Yeah. That the industry willingly pays that tax. And and look the, the success we've had since the tax was, you know, was put to that purpose. I mean, the wildlife are doing pretty darn, darn well in this country. I mean, more white-tailed deer, more turkey. You know, it's it's great success. The bald eagles off the endangered species list. All of this being, you know, funded by... Um, the excise tax. I think you pointed it out well when you wrote that piece for Outside Magazine a couple months ago where you were talking about, hey, bird watchers, you have birds to look at because of hunters. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, and, and to more to the point of what we're talking about, you know, we got a lot of people that are going to gun ranges today that will never step foot in the woods. And they're the ones that are helping fund this. That, that's, a, that, that, that's a nice segue. We, we really cherish a good segue around here. <laughs> into, into uh, I want you guys to explain the target practice and marksmanship training support act. Um, oh, good. Because I, I was going to go there, and you went there. I have questions. But I have questions about it. I call it pivot. You call it segue. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. I like, I like that, man. It's a pivot. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, because you imagine a pivot having like a point of pivot. So, this is. I, I think this is hard for some people to visualize. That so so this Pittman Robertson fund takes. Kind of like where the where, when it comes to exercise the fund, it's like matching grants where, where states are doing projects and they get funding that they apply for funding from the fund to to do certain projects. And a lot of the projects are centered around wildlife restoration. There's a movement though. Catch like interrupt me when I'm wrong. Okay. And then you there's a push though that states should have more flexibility to use Pittman-Robertson money to create shooting ranges. Right. So <clears throat> the, the law now allows the states to use the money for wildlife conservation restoration. That's where the bulk of the money goes and should go. They can also use some of the Pittman-Robertson for hunter education, obviously very important. That, that's already, they can right. already they, do they that. They do that now. Okay. And they can already now also use the, some of the funds under uh, certain conditions in the law to build or enhance public shooting ranges. So a number of years ago, we had, had we always have conversations with the state fishing game agencies, right? They have an organization called uh, uh, the uh, Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, very creative name. So they have meetings and we go to the meetings and because uh, there's obviously uh, things we need to dialogue. And one of the discussions was, and I remember being at the meeting because I was, said, look, you know, we from the industry point of view think you guys are not spending enough money building public shooting ranges. <clears throat> and we need that. That's where the growth is taking uh, 
place is in uh, the shooting sports. Uh, and we all know about the struggles for hunting, but you know, it's just to your, the point we were just talking about the shooters that never go afield are the ones that are paying the, you know, the excise tax, right? That's where the bulk of the money is coming from. The firearms, ammunition that are being used for target shooting. So we think you guys should, you know, spend more money on this. This is what we want to see. We're paying the tax. And they said, well, the formula is very restrictive in the laws. And that's one of the reasons why they just don't really do it. And so we said, well, what would, what do you need? What would you want? And that became the, what we call the range bill because the, the name is too long to the target practice marksmanship training and support act uh, that's sponsored by senator capito uh, in the senate the range, the range bill. just call it the range bill it's easier <laughs> and so all the bill will do is change that formula in the pittman robertson act to allow um more flexibility in the states to use their pittman robertson allocation so there's two parts to it. There's the match part, and then there's the time frame. So it, it extends the time period, and it reduces how the match. So um, so that the states have to put up less money from their allocation, and they have more time to get the, the project done. It has no impact on the deficit. It doesn't change the excise tax up or down. It just gives them a little bit more flexibility. Um, so it's broadly supported. It is passed. The House and the Senate in different packages, standalones. We have yet to get it across the finish line, but hopefully. Because, because why? Because it. it I, I want to touch more on it. It just gets into a little bit of politics. Like what it's bundled with? It's what it gets packaged. So a lot of times, the because it's not controversial at all, it has broad bipartisan support. Well, I want to point out a controversy. It could pass on unanimous consent as a standalone, right? Like which is what we tried to do. It gets bundled or packaged with other provisions that are that where there is disagreement or it's not as bipartisan, and so they try to use the bill as a sweetener um, to try to bring people along on other on other titles in the bill. I got you. And then that big the sportsman's package keeps getting bogged down and not getting across the finish line. Um, some of it is pure politics because the you know the sponsor. <laughs> Is, is up for re-election and the other side doesn't want to give them a win before, you know, before the election. That's just, you know, the nature of politics, right? I mean, the politics drives policy, as they say here in Washington. So um, so we've tried to, you know, we've, we've had it in the NDAA, which is the defense author, you know, defense appropriation bill that funds DOD. We had it in there. On one side, it fell out in conference because uh, for, for a number of reasons, basically because uh, McCain wasn't around. Uh, it was right before he died. And so they they kept the bill clean. Nothing extraneous was allowed to be kept in. So it fell out there. We thought we had it done then. So it's uh, we've been working on it, I don't know, like six, maybe eight years. No kid. Yeah. But it, it takes that long. I was watching an interview with you, and you were talking um, – you were talking about just the slow, arduous process of legislation. Yeah, it doesn't... You were managing expectations. Yes. <laughs> like but, for the Hearing Protection Act. Yeah, that's what, that's what I want to do next. Another pivot. That would have been a great pivot, but I got to back up. <laughs> I, could see a smart, I could see a smart, well-meaning person looking at the range bill and being nervous or leery or suspicious of the fact that you'd be pulling some of the money away from wildlife work. But I think what I would tell him in that conversation is I would tell him that you know, I, the word investment gets thrown around a lot, right? In, in, in politics, like everything's an investment. But you could kind of see it as being a, 
I think you can make a legitimate case that it is like an investment. It, By creating more opportunities for shooters, exactly, you're probably going to generate you're, you're going to generate a lot. You're probably going to generate a larger fund, and maybe and in, in, in then with, with the goal being the end of the day, actually putting more money toward wildlife. Uh, that's exactly. Here's the talking points that many, many, many meetings on the hill. A rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. Shooters who are paying for conservation deserve a return on their investment, and the more public opportunities for shooting, the more consumption of ammunition, the more purchase of firearms, the more funding for wildlife conservation. Pittman-Robertson excise tax dollars will increase. And, now, and the bill does not require the states to do anything. It uh, just yeah. gives them flexibility. If they want to do it. Yeah. So I mean, then if we get this passed and then they don't, we'll be back saying, now look, <laughs> yeah. you said this is what you needed. We got it for you. Now please go build some more ranges. Um, or just improve the ones that exist. It doesn't need to be mysterious because it's something it's like easily trackable in ten you know, ten yeah, years oh, after passage. Will be. You'll be able to look <laughs> and maybe you'd see a diminishment of um uh I would like to think you'd see a diminishment of shot up uh, appliances. Because yeah. we, we use a we lot uh, like honestly, we use a yeah. lot of makeshift you kind of forced to. We use a lot of makeshift shooting ranges. And, and that's part of the concern of this. I mean, one of the things that we find from new shooters, new hunters, is is the barriers to entry. So, right. one, let's be honest. It's an expensive sport to get into, whether you're going to be shooting recreationally or you're going to hunt. Buying a rifle, buying licenses, uh, you know, whether you're not even going to be buying access through, you know, hunt leases, those kinds of things. But when you have a public access range, now that's open to everybody to go use. But again, what we're seeing here is a lot of ranges that have dilapidated or they're ad hoc ranges and we actually had cases out there in Arizona where people were shooting on public ranges that weren't maintained and weren't well kept and you had a fatality of a pregnant Air Force spouse who was shot and killed by a, a stray round that went beyond the edge of that range beyond left and right lateral limits and, and resulted in a fatality we want safe places for people to go shoot yeah. there's one yeah. of the things we're working er, working for um, in the Council, the, the Federal Advisory Committee that I'm on, I chair the shooting committee, and that's exactly the discussion we've been having. Is we need places where people can go shoot. They need you know dedicated space so that they can be policed. After the shot show last year, uh, myself and several other folks from NSSF went out with Secretary Zinke and and local volunteers, uh, and you know to clean up some BLM land where people had been shooting and it was not pretty right i mean it's the shot up tvs and refrigerators and couches and just like it was just it was embarrassing and you're sitting there picking this trash up in bags and bag after bag after bag and it's like you know this this is not a good you know if you're not a hunter you're not a shooter you come and saw this it would not be, you know, you would not have a good opinion of, of the sport or people that participate in the sport. Yeah, you want to point out, like, I don't, um, you know, you're a shooter, but it doesn't mean I condone littering. Exactly. But, but they get they get conflated. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. I think it can become a major barrier, right? Like, for us, we all of us at the table can sort of, like, deal with that, and you can, like, make it a safe place when you show up, and if you see unsafe activity, you can walk away. But to someone that's just trying to get into it and you just you show up at a place like that, it's like you're not going to be able to make the best of that. You're just going to turn around and walk away. So it becomes well, a major it barrier. To, it leads to BLM closing off land, shutting right. lands down, yeah. right, yeah. to shooting. And even for us, I feel like there's never like enough shooting ranges. In all the places I've lived across the West, um, I've never lived in a town 
where there were so many shooting ranges where on a Saturday you could be like, oh, I'm just going to go here and it'll, it won't be busy, right? Like, So when I moved to Virginia, I actually, one of the criteria for the house that I chose to live in was the, the access to a private shooting range is just down the road from my house. So, I mean, that's how important it is for some of us. Yeah, we want to yeah. know that we can get somewhere where we can shoot. And it's it's a question I get from people all the time. You know, where can I go shoot? Right. I'm fortunate that I've got a public shooting range not too far from the house where I can go shoot, swing a shotgun, and I've also got a private range where I can go shoot. We well, have a website my for that, where yeah. to shoot. Exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. What's it called? Where to shoot. Yeah, let's, oh, go, cool. let's go shooting.org. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up a mile. We could ride our bikes down to our shooting range. <laughs> it was it was it wasn't public. It was a private yeah. gun club, Twin Lake Gun Club. And, you know, you'd have to work hard to find someone there yeah but it was just, yeah it was nice to have uh back to the pivot suppressors this is something i become like increasingly interested in i'm actually just entered into the pro i just began the process with the help of a friend of mine um a friend of mine at vortex i began the process of doing the the rigmarole right to acquire one yeah, yeah. Well, i started it before i started it before but at the time there was a 14 month yeah. delay. Yeah. It's probably about nine, 10 months now. He was saying maybe eight. Maybe it's, well, then the shut, <laughs> then nothing got processed during the it, shutdown. I think it's, we asked them to tell us what the delay is. Um, and it was eight months. They had started getting it down. It's probably eight, nine months. A, a friend of mine actually um, that's, um, got one and it took a year. Yeah. I, I want to get into that, like what that process looks like and what could remedy it. But just to touch on it, kind of like my personal awareness of the issue, um, I hunted with one right. years ago. Right. How many years ago? Nine years ago in Scotland. Okay. And I'm and, and I'm sitting there with a guy. What do they call the What do they call the guys the in Scotland? The Gillies. Yeah. What do they call them? Yeah. The hunt, whatever. He's like a man. He's like a game manager. Yeah, their game manager is called Gillies. Shoots tons of shoots tons of deer off a of big. They got like this huge private property, like an estate, and this guy shoots tons of them for the market. I mean, he 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 like you know they sell red deer, right? They sell wild red deer, and he shoots and guts and brings to market red deer, processes them, not processes them, but uh, strips the hide, and the only and what well, was funny, he only guts from the diaphragm down. Hmm. Which there's, they had a word for it too. Anyways, this guy hunts with a suppressor. He had a Tika T3. I think it was a 270. That's um, my rifle. What's that? That's my rifle. Yeah. yeah. With a suppressor on it. And I remember saying to him, this is years ago, and I, I wasn't like as aware of him and then. And I'm like, I can't believe you guys can hunt with these things. He goes, I can't believe you don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's their rule. <laughs> yes. He, he's not allowed to not use it. That's exactly right. So only in America is there this public perception that this is some evil device only used, has only one purpose, that's for gangsters and assassins, right? Like, and as you say, in the rest of the world, that uh, doesn't have that connotation. It's required for hunting in many parts. Even in countries that have like very restricted- Finland, like, you, even if you're out, you know, with no one around for miles, you're still required by law there to use it. You can buy them like hardware stores in London, right? In England, they're not. You can buy them in New Zealand, and like they come from China. They're made of plastic and they're disposable, and they cost like twenty-five bucks. I've been told. Um, only in America do you have this connotation, but 
you they are legal to possess in 42 states. You got to jump through all the hoops, but they're legal in 42 states, and you can hunt with them now in 40 states. 40 states, yeah. So, you know, there's the le- there's the legislation that's been pending for a while called the Hearing Protection Act. Can I interrupt you real quick? Sure. I want to talk more. I want to talk theory. Sure. For a couple more minutes. Then I want to talk about all this other stuff because this stuff, this stuff I, don't, I actually don't understand. Okay. But I want to talk about the theory of it for a minute. Sure. Because the best argument I've heard against suppressors was from a, remember this? We were hunting swamp rabbits in Kentucky. <clears throat> I do. And we're talking to a game, we we're hunting with a game warden. And I think I've, ta- I've told this story like too many times already, but I'll tell it one more time then I'm never going to tell it again. We're talking to him and he was saying how during general firearm season, the hunting for him is out of the question. He's just too busy right. doing his work as a game warden. But he says he does like to uh, squeeze in some archery hunting. He says, but my problem is I get up in my tree stand and it's bow season and it gets around prime time and off in the distance... <laughs> Ouch, right? He's like, something about that shot didn't sound right. Doesn't sound right. And he says, then I'm down out of my tree stand heading over in some direction. And he was saying that, he also said that Facebook is a very important, has become, has emerged as a very good law enforcement tool. <laughs> he said like, I don't need to go out in the woods anymore. I got Facebook. But, uh, <laughs> but he said like, that sound is, import- is, is an important tool for him. Right. And he was leery of suppressors because the gunshot, right? But then I think about like, and, and I took that in and I, and I thought about it, but the more I think about it, it's like the way, we, the way we're trained to view wildlife in, in the, the, the wildlife models that we have is we're, we're trained to view it, or not trained to, it's necessary to view wildlife at population level. Absolutely. So I, I just have the more, I, th- I just have a very hard time picturing that, you would see even localized population impact from if some small number of poachers use that technology along with all the other technologies available to them, including crossbows, which are much quieter. Um, I just can't see like, I can't see there becoming significant population level declines of game because of this, this, other tool. So, so, other yeah, I, so let's back I, I, up just even, even a second. From, argument, yeah, but. so let's just back up a second to what your your game warden is telling you. Because I've got a, a, a guy I used to work for in the Marine Corps. He retired and I was a game warden in Florida. And, and his initial reaction to suppressors is the same thing. They're going to be a tool for poachers all the time. But something, the key that you said, so the, the game warden's sitting in his tree stand and he hears this gunshot. Right. <laughs> slightly different. Doesn't sound like a normal gunshot, but he still hears it. So here's the point about... Oh, no, no, I, I misspoke. Not, no. He wasn't pointing that out. Well, he, was pointing, he wasn't saying it was a suppressed gunshot. Just the timing of the gunshot. Mm-hmm. Meaning a single gunshot at dusk. Sure. Okay, yeah, okay. Got it. Yep. So you still hear this gunshot, but again, the whole deal with suppressors is it doesn't completely silence the gun. You're still no. audible. It brings it down from the, the same decibel level of about a jet going off to about below a jackhammer where it's not going to cause instant and, right. and permanent hearing loss. That, you could still hear that gunshot. Because there's still the sonic. Yeah. Exactly. That's why we, uh, in the law, they're called silencers because that's the name Maxim gave to it. I get he, corrected about that all the time. When he invented it, right? Like, and he's the guy. It actually, was a marketing he, tool. He, yeah. It was. He invented the muffler on cars. It is, it, its function is the same as a muffler. 
you can still hear a car with, with a muffler. Without the muffler, it's a lot louder. But that's all it is. is it muffles so the sound. So we're basically running straight pipes. <laughs> running cherry bombs. <laughs> cherry bombs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you're no, drag uh, racing so with that's your why, rifle out in the hills. That's why we always refer to it as suppressors, not, yeah, not silencers. It, it's, you know, even though in the law it's silencers, it's to, you know, to try to win the rhetorical battle. As I understand it, um, the best research um, on the on the issue was done by um, Steve Holbrook, a lawyer, Second Amendment advocate, argued many Supreme Court cases, and he's, he's written a number of books. the um, The reason that su- suppressors were put in the National Firearms Act in 1934 was at the request of fishing game agencies because they were concerned that people would use suppressors to poach game during the depression. That's where it came from? Yes. And it never happened. It and and now they're legal in to hunt within forty states and I've not seen any evidence or suggestion that, you know, people are poaching and it's having an impact uh, on populations. Yeah, but even, like, even localized. Okay, but you can poach with a crossbow. No exactly. one talks about getting rid of crossbows. Right. It's like an effective right. poaching tool. There's plenty of, if you follow the news, there's plenty of poaching that goes on with archery equipment. Right. But no one's suggesting, hey, we shouldn't be allowed to have bows because they're so quiet and you could poach with them. But even take it outside the context of hunting, right? I mean, like if you go to a shooting range, one of the biggest complaints or, or issues for shooting ranges is noise complaints from neighbors, right? Typically, it's, you know, the ranger's in a rural area and then the suburbs move in, people move next to a shooting range, and then they're shocked to learn that they're shooting at the shooting range on Saturday morning. So yeah, if you're all this shooting from that right, shooting, shooting range, range that I <laughs> move next to, so it will allow people at shooting range, ranges to be better neighbors and to sort of address that concern and issue. But and And if... Let's assume there was some evidence that developed that oh we got a problem in this state or this part of the state where you know we're seeing a reduction in an adverse population impact. We think there's a lot of poaching and it's people using suppressors. Well, then you you can the state fishing game agency has the power to you know manage that and say okay you can't use suppressors now. But I mean if people are poaching, <laughs> they're the breaking the law, right? I mean it's like. So, uh, but I don't think there's any evidence of that. And they're never used in crime. I mean, like you can't find evidence of, of uh, yeah, crime. A- ATF has come out and said it's infinitesimally low. I mean, they can't. That's all yeah. zero, I don't know. Yeah, zero, 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 one, five percent. Yeah. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. 
or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like Black Buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Uh, another thing that I think about when I look at it as I was kind of kicking this whole thing around is that why 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 do shooters have to like why do we have to as a matter of law accept how loud a firearm is like if firearms are just naturally quiet would there be legislation that made you make it loud so one of the arguments against the hearing protection act from the gun control groups is that you know the police it would defeat this technology that was developed in Iraq and now being used in some city spot shot, shot, spotter. shot spotter. Yeah. Okay. And the CEO of the company said, no, the technology would still pick up a, a report of a suppressed firearm. It has. Yeah. And, and yeah. all they'd have to do is tweak the software to, to make right. sure they picked it up so, every time. So, yeah, that, that became the argument, like that somehow uh, bad guys are going to get go through the rigmarole to get suppressors. I mean, it just... They can get them now. They're legal in 42 states, and you don't see crimes being committed with them. The thing, too, is not that it, not that it changed my perspective. It was as I kicked it around. Um, I think having kids kind of affected it, too, because I have hearing loss. I'm left-handed, and I have hearing loss in my left ear. What? 
<laughs> you don't yeah. say. I, I mean, I, everybody I hang out with, right? Everyone I hang out with has They all to have shout it. at one another? <laughs> yeah, so I have it. And now it, it's largely self-inflicted, okay? Because I've known for my adult life, and, I, and I'm bad about it. I need to be better, but I'm bad about hearing protection. Um, lazy about hearing protection. When I was a kid, it wasn't self-inflicted. It was just that my dad had no aware, didn't have awareness of it. He probably, I can only imagine what kind of hearing loss he must have had from being, you know, a combat soldier. But uh, now, man, when I when I'm with my kids and we're shooting, I'm very aware. Oh yeah, of the ear thing. In fact, I made my kid. We're out duck hunting, and I made him sit there with the headphones on. You know, he can't hear it. I'd be yelling at him to go grab a duck or something. He can't hear anything anybody's saying. But I'm just like, I'm aware of it now. And so when he's 10, where we live, he can hunt with me. Right. He can hunt deer with me when he's 10. And I'm going to have him hunt with a suppressed rifle. Yeah. And and there's other benefits aside from the from the hearing the hearing protection right. of it all. I mean, it's reduced recoil. It's 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 less of a muzzle flash. It's it's when you're trying to introduce someone to the shooting sports and to hunting, and you're able to sit there, especially if you're going to be hunting out of a out of a shoot house or out of a blind, or you're sitting in a tree stand in close proximity to one another. It's it's less of that shock that's coming out of the end of the barrel mm-hmm. of that muzzle blast. So it it takes that up and it, it makes that learning experience for someone new, like a ten year old kid. It's going to be a little bit more enjoyable, a little bit less intimidating. It takes some of that that scariness out of it. So. Yeah, I'm definitely, se- I'm sensitive to, uh, I'm sensitive, I don't want to like diminish the arguments against, and I'm sensitive to it, but I just, I just feel like it's a situation where the, the pros really outweigh the cons in my mind. And the cons haven't, aren't, dem- the cons aren't demonstrated, they're hypothetical cons. The, the, the opposition to it, it comes from gun control groups and uh, they don't have any, to me, you know, good case or good arguments at all, and in fact, you know, it would be good for ATF because they spend an enormous amount of time and energy and money processing these paper, the paperwork. When uh, you know this is not a public, this is not a you know public safety issue. It's not going to result in crime or anything like that. So they spend an incredible amount of time processing these form fours that you have to fill out and yeah, submit. Can you explain the process, like what it involves? Yeah, so yeah, it, there's a $200 tax that you have to pay um, and you have to fill out this form. You have to get, you know, pictures, fingerprints, and the form and send it in with $200 to ATF. And notification of the chief law enforcement right. officer. Yep. Uh, who who does what with it? <laughs> nothing. Does nothing. You just nothing. have to notify right. him. I'm right. going to buy a suppressor. Right. Uh, and then the two hundred dollars goes to the treasury. ATF processes the paperwork and they do a background check. Guess what the background check is? It's the exact same background check you go through when you buy a gun at retail, right? Exact same check. Why does it take? Because there's just stacks of paper. You know, it's it's all paper right so so ways to improve it would be electronic forms some of the discussions about how you might do legislation would be to the original act was to take it out of the nfa suppressors are also in the gun control act right so even if you took it out of the national firearms act so you didn't have to pay the 200 dollars, you didn't have to do the form for that's the same thing that makes it fully automatic that's the same that's the same act that covers fully automatic rights. yes Exactly. So, 
Um, if you took it out of the National Firearms Act, it would still be in the Gun Control Act. So if you were, so they would still be serialized. They would still be a forty-four seventy-three and a background check performed on the purchaser. The same background check they do a second time when they go to pick up the suppressor. So you're doing the same same check twice. What's the point, right? So that would like then then you know the manufacturers could ship them to licensed dealers, and you can go in and you can have them in inventory. You can go buy one. Go right. the, and, and go through the same. And you check, have a background same check, check process. right? So um, there are some, but there's one bill that's been introduced in the Senate that would take it even out of the Gun Control Act. Um, you know, uh, and it would be wouldn't be regulated. It'll just be like any other accessory, because it, it's not a firearm. It doesn't do anything. It only you know, as we talked, you just it's an attachment that you would put on a, on a firearm. So the argument would be, what's why is this being controlled at all? So you know whether that's and look, the, the legislation didn't move in a Republican-controlled House and Senate because there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of education needs to be done, um, you know. So but in a Democrat-controlled House where, you know, they're having hearings today on gun control legislation, the the prospects of moving that legislation in, in this Congress uh, is, you know, it's not feasible, in my opinion. Even with, like, even with the arguments around just safety issues. Yeah. I mean, it just becomes a, a political issue. They're not going to pass. Anything. Like, if it yeah. seems friendly to guns, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Can you talk? But I mean, even even when you know, Republicans controlled the House, it was still difficult to move the bill and, and in the Senate as well. I mean, there was just, you know, we we didn't get enough co-sponsors. We didn't get enough movement on it. So, is it, is the, but again, it is, takes a lot of time. It takes years and years and years. You think it'll ever happen? I think it will. It's going to take a while longer. Yeah. So I would say you probably. I mean, it, it, it could go is, in a minute, or it could take another ten years. And those are those are things out. When when Hearing Protection Act was introduced in the last Congress, and we saw a lot of people got very excited, right. and they kind of sat out on the sidelines. Well, I'm going to wait, so I don't have to pay the two hundred dollar tax and wait nine months. Mm-hmm. So we're back to where we're, we're telling them then is right. don't wait because things in Congress are glacial. So if you want to suppress it, start I, the paperwork I, now. I would completely agree. If, if you're holding off getting one because you think you're not going to pay the $200 tax, you, know, you can be waiting a long time, unfortunately. I had dinner recently with one of the state, uh, with a state legislator in Montana who was, um, who, who worked heavily on the, on the one that, that, the, that allowed for hunting in Montana. And they, they had had some resistance. They had had some resistance there against fish and game. Yep. I don't. I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was a real strenuous resistance, but there was some. There was some resistance. So there's been efforts to uh, events around the country, um, done by the American Suppressor Association. NSSF has helped out. NRA has helped out as well to educate state legislators. Uh, we we did an event at the um, shooting range in Rayburn Building. Did you know that there's a there's a range in. There's a, range, there's a gun range underneath Congress. Oh, no, I didn't know that. It's yeah. for the Capitol Hill Police. Oh, okay. But, but we had the member uh, host an event for other members so that they could come and hear for themselves uh, the difference between a suppressed and unsuppressed firearm and that there's still a very loud report. You can hear it. It's not silenced in any way, shape, or form. What you see on TV, you know, like the, you know, like the puff of air, and it's just not reality. Would you hunt with one, Yanni? 
<clears throat> definitely. What I was going to add that I didn't know about, but we were, cause we were looking into doing a podcast just about hearing loss and hearing protection and whatnot and talking to a bunch of these experts. They were saying, yeah, the one thing that- would be a, a lot of jokes it, in there. It would be a very loud podcast. <laughs> I could do like a 10 minute yeah. riff on that. <laughs> <laughs> but important, right? Like obviously not as so important to a 25 year old, but as we age and you start to realize that you're losing it and you want to protect your kids on and on. But um, a lot of these guys were saying, that, yeah, it's, like it only minimizes it so much that it takes it down to like you were saying hearing safe to, huh? but you're still if you don't run ear protection while you shoot a a, a suppressed gun you are still getting hearing damage it's not a hundred percent like you just put it on and you're just off you go like everyone i talked to said you should still wear hearing protection is that right that's yeah. probably the best argument the other side has is but when you say you know hearing protection and they say we're hearing protection, <laughs> you, you know. Like, well, yeah, with the tonality is why well, you shouldn't be shooting anyway. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, background checks. Can, can you explain? I, re- I heard a story. Now I heard a story. I was living. I was living in Washington when I heard the story. I heard a story about how if you lie on your background check, that that prosecutors. Don't prosecute people who lie on background checks. And they even interviewed, I think, someone from the King County Sheriff's Department, so the, the, the county that holds Seattle. Right. And he even confirmed, I can't remember how many people, it's, uh, some staggering number, there's in the hundreds of thousands of people who tried to buy one and lied on a background check. But then don't get in trouble for having lied on the background check. Uh, do, you, do you understand yeah, this at all? Yeah, so like, I don't, even know, is, I don't uh, even know if I'm explaining it right, but it's a so story the, I heard. When you fill out the form, it's called the Form 4473. Anyone who's purchased a gun from a licensed dealer has filled it out, and then they ask you questions: Are you, you know, are you a felon, dishonorably discharged, you know, here illegally, et cetera, um, convicted, restraining orders, right? Yeah. right. So I like six, seven categories that make you a prohibited person. And then you sign it and you swear to the accuracy of it. So if you lie on the form, um, it's a crime, a federal crime. And you get up 10 years in jail. But, they, so, but no one goes after them though, right? Well, so what has, So then they do the background check, right? And let's say the person's denied, right? Or um, you even have cases where people <laughs> don't lie on the form, uh, or they lie on the form and they pass the background check. But let's say you, you fill out the form, you lie, you say you aren't a convicted felon when you are, and you get denied, right? So when that happens, the FBI notifies. Uh, the, the dealer's not told why you're denied. You don't know at the counter. The dealer doesn't know. The dealer does not know. They just know it's like, you know, green light, you know, yellow, a delay, red light, you, you know, you're denied. And they don't know why you're denied, and they all, and so they can't tell the customer why they're denied. They can just give them information that if they wanted to file an appeal with the FBI, with Nix, which uh, you can do if you think it was, you know, they're mistaken. And some small number of times they are, because it's primarily a name check. And so, you, you know, somebody could have a similar name, similar date of birth with somebody else, and, and they... They think, you know, this is John Doe A, not John Doe B. Yeah, so, like our buddy Kevin Murphy wound up on a no-fly list because uh, some other Kevin Murphy. Right, exactly. How many of the hell Kevin Murphys there got to be running out of this yeah. country? I don't know, but. Yeah. 
So, uh, but so the FBI will tell ATF, okay, there was, and then ATF, um, you know, uh, it's their job to go out and track these people down. It's ATF's job. Yes. Because it's a federal crime, and if the firearm was transferred, See, the person's a prohibited person. So that so, but then it becomes a resource issue. Uh, a lot of times, what I've heard is, you know, the, the, let's say uh, this is the example was given, it was told to me. You got an eighty-year-old grandfather buying a, a gun to is a, give to a gift to their grandchild or something like that, and. You know that that when they tipped that cow over in college in in 1953, that was a felony under state law, right? And they were convicted of a felony they didn't even know it was a felony, and so they get denied. You know, are you going to prosecute that person? Is that worth using the prosecutorial resources? So a lot of times, ATF will say, "Look, just give us the gun back. You can't buy guns. You're a prohibited person," um, and, and that sort of situation. Or you're, you're the United States Attorney's Office. You have limited resources. You want to have the most bang for your buck, if you will, impact on reducing violent crime. They look at that, and, and I'm a former prosecutor, so I can understand this. Look, I, I got, I'm working, you know, on convicting these gangbangers who were selling drugs and involved in shootings and such. Or am I going to go after Grandpa um, because he didn't realize, you know, 40 years ago that was a felony? How are you going to use your resources? Which is more important to impacting public safety? I mean, yeah. that's a very extreme example, but but there are people, you know, if it's a convicted felon, it's a bad guy, and they bought a gun. Those are the people that would get prosecuted. Um, so it just kind of depends on why they were denied, and, and you know, what, what's the best use of limited resources? I mean, the government is no different than anybody else. You've got limited resources; you have to make decisions to, to maximize the resources to have the most impact. Can you explain where background checks that you that you get when you go like you go into a you know Swartzen's warehouse and buy a rifle off the counter? You do a background check. Can you explain what people say when they when people talk about the the need for universal background checks and where within universal background checks, like what's your perspective on it and where in that yeah. do you have where in that do you have a problem? So. If you ever buy a firearm from a licensed dealer, it's, there's a background check. It's required by law, um, the Brady Act. And you know, we, the industry supports that. Actually, the idea of the background check at the retail point of purchase from a licensee was an industry idea long before the so Brady you, Act. You, your, your organization supports? Yes. It was an industry idea like because the deal, we don't want dealers inadvertently selling guns to prohibited persons, okay. right? We can all agree it's, we don't want prohibited people getting firearms. What we have seen, however, is is that the background check system that exists now has got some pretty significant uh, problems. And the background checks are not uh, always accurate. And they're not always... The, the data... I mean, the data in the background check system is only as good as the data that's put in. And if data is not put in, right? So look at Sutherland Springs. There was a guy who was a primitive person like four, three or four different ways. Uh, and Federally prohibited. Yes. Federal. Okay. Felony conviction, dishonorably discharged, uh, domestic, domestic violence. violence. And, oh, and, so when you say four different ways, like he had like he was, independent 
Yes. He'd arrived he, at each, it independently yes. four times. And he was involunt- involuntarily totally committed, committed to a mental health facility. And okay. the Air Force and all of DOD, not just the Air Force, he happened to be uh, in the Air Force at the time, were not putting the records into the FBI background check system. Out of, out, of, uh, out of a... Op- like out of a... Uh, intellectual opposition. That was no, the word I'm trying no, to say. No, just, okay. Just bureaucracy, bureaucracy or oversight. Not doing your job. Yeah, yeah. didn't, didn't lost, fall through. Lost. Right, and and it's frustrating because, I mean, there were apparently uh, IG reports talking about this in the past. Yep. Nix was aware that the DOD wasn't putting in records, so that guy was able to buy Several. firearms four times, going to a store or license dealer. Buying a gun, passing a background check four times because those records were not in the system. You get sixty so, each time that retailer at the counters want to make sure that he's doing the right thing, and he's running a background check on this guy who should never own a firearm, and he's coming back clean. He has no idea. The deal is relying upon that background check, right? So, um, so, and then after the tragedy in, in Newtown, you know, we launched an initiative, and there have been. Some federal legislation in the past, but it really just didn't wasn't getting the job done. We started NSSF, that is, started the Fix Nicks campaign, and on the industry's nickel, we went around and got the law changed. Now in 16 states, we're still working on more. Uh, Montana is one of them. Wyoming, right? Wyoming, Wyoming Montana. New Hampshire, Montana, Wyoming are the three states that we're still targeting, and then we want to make improvements. But we we changed the law in 16 states. Uh, to require the states to put disqualifying records into the FBI database. Primarily, what was really missing was mental health records okay. because states were not reporting mental health records because of privacy laws or state had to change state law because they weren't allowed to under state law. And the federal government cannot compel under federal law the states to to give the information. Is that right? Really? They can't, right. So uh, it has to be done vol- you know, voluntarily by the states. So, so we got the law changed in 16 states. We increased the disqualifying mental health records in the database, the FBI database, by 200%. They went from about 1.7 million to 5 million. And again, there are still states that um, are not submitting. And we're going back and looking at the states like, did they just put do a, a big dump once and then have they continued to report as they should? So we're very proud of that. Like We did that. The industry did that. Now, our view is you have to fix the background check system. Hence, NICS is the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS, N-I-C-S. Okay. Fix NICS. To us, it makes no sense to start expanding you know, private party background checks when you, you have a system that needs to be fixed in the first instance. Right, like that, we think is where the focus should be. Let's get the records into the database uh, and fix it before you have a conversation about expanding it, because you're just going to have more bad background checks, and that doesn't benefit anybody. Um, so, and there there are other issues with the legislation we have concerns about. We, um, but we think the focus should be on fixing next, and we, the industry have been doing that. And then after Sutherland Springs, Senator Cornyn introduced the Fix Nix Act, um, named after our program. That wasn't by accident. Uh, and we advocated for that bill to pass, and it did, and it signed by President Trump, which requires all federal agencies to submit records. Okay. Um, and we've been talking to Nix, and that's happening. Um, but even there, some... some um, some parts of the federal government were dragging their feet and getting the records submitted. Maybe dragging their feet is not the right word. They, they 
weren't as timely as we'd like. I think some of it is just, again, a resource issue. Yeah. Um, and then it, it gives grant money, makes grant money available <coughs> to the states um, to help them get their records into the system. Uh, there's um, a report I think will be coming out fairly soon, uh, about a year anniversary of the bill, to see what progress has been made. But again, we, we talk to Nick's on a regular basis, and they say, yeah, the records are starting to, are coming in that DOD has put the records in, other federal agencies that had records that had not been reporting are now uh, submitting. So we're very proud of that legislation. You know, we, we advocated for it. We, it actually ended up passing with more Democrat uh, co-sponsors than Republican co-sponsors. And the lead Democrat co-sponsor was... Uh, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, hardly uh, a fan of the firearms industry, even though the industry was founded long, in long Connecticut, long that. history, yeah. you know, created the Connecticut's economy, and NSSF is still located there, as are some major manufacturers. But so we're very proud of that, and I think what that shows is, you know, there can be common ground on these issues, and and we think this is a great example of that. Now, as I said, there are other issues with the bill we have concerns about, but... Would, would, would universal background <laughs> checks as normally understood, would that prevent a person from inheriting... You know, like, I never bought... Like, I didn't buy a new firearm until I was in my 30s, right? Like, you would just... Like, I just... I, I for a long time, hung with my grand... Like, had yeah. ownership of right. my grandfather's shotgun. Would, would universal background checks, as they're discussed, prevent the like you from getting a gun from your parents? No. It, it, Without it, you doing it, a background check? So the, the bills allow for, and it's changed over time as iterations have been introduced, like to allow a transfer within the family, right? So father to son, grandfather to grandchild um, would not require a background check. Okay, okay. Um, but there's, so a couple of the issues with, the the idea is first, well, not, not necessarily in order, but one big issue is that universal background checks does it's not enforceable unless you have national registration, and the the Department of Justice has acknowledged that in, in a written document um, that it only works uh, if there's national registration, and that to many uh, Second Amendment supporters isn't is just unacceptable, yeah. and federal law doesn't allow. Uh, registration. Um, so how do you, you know, like, so if you, you can't enforce it, then what's, you know, you make the argument, what's the point, right? Second is, uh, you know, studies by the Department of Justice demonstrate that, you know, bad guys uh, are not getting guns, you know, from licenses. They're stealing them. That's like the number one source or they're just, you know, trading them for drugs and things like that. Colorado passed universal background checks. There was this, um, what we call the myth of 40%. Uh, gun control groups were claiming, based on a very flawed, uh, discredited study, that 40% of all firearms transfers are private party and with no background check. And that's how bad guys are getting guns. The, even the authors of that study said, this is, <laughs> ignore it, it's no good, it's a bad study. Colorado passed universal background checks and saw not a 40% increase, about 8%. So this, this idea that, you know, there are just guns going all over the place without background checks, it, it, Colorado demonstrates that that's not really the case. It used to be the, the, the gun show, loop, the so-called gun show loophole. Yeah. The reality about gun shows is that, you know, the vast overwhelming majority of people that are selling firearms at a gun show are licensed dealers 
Background checks, 4473 and a background check take place. DOJ surveys of prison inmates incarcerated for firearms-related offenses. Where'd you get the gun? Gun shows, less than 1%. So that's just not really... And then it became the internet loophole. This idea that you can buy guns on the internet. Well, you can advertise guns on the internet, assuming Facebook or others will let you, which they don't. But, you know, if you're a licensed dealer, it's still a face-to-face transaction with a 4473 and a background check. All it is is, you know, you may pay with a credit card and then the gun gets shipped to your local dealer. Does Gun Broker go through a gunbroker.com? Gun Broker requires anybody using that service to, uh, that the gun's transferred to an FFL. That's their own policy. That's their own policy. Yeah. And, and a lot of those sites that exist do that. So that's one problem. Uh, another problem from the industry's point of view is you're, you're asking these retailers to perform essentially a government service for the government, right? And in some states that require background checks, California, the dealer has no choice. They must do it, right? And it caps the fee. And guess what? The fee is so low that they lose money on the transaction. They have got to spend time, energy, labor, right, to process a background check for a private party sale, uh, and and they end up losing money. But they have no choice in California, uh, so that's that's unfair. Um, we've seen other states cap the fee, um, and that's you know if you're going to let them, if they're going to do this, they should just be able to charge what the market will bear. I mean, it's America, you know. Uh, you, the government should be regulating that price. To, in our point of view. Another problem we see is that there's no liability protections for the retailer. So, you know, Yanni comes in with the gun. He wants to sell to you. I'm the dealer. I take it in. I've got to log it into my acquisition record, right? I do the background check to you. You leave, and then there's an accident, and then you sue me. Yeah. So now I got to defend a lawsuit for a gun that I didn't sell from my inventory. And guess what? My insurance company's going to say, you didn't sell that gun from your inventory. There's no coverage. Or I make a mistake in the record. ATF comes in and finds a violation of my paperwork. I can now potentially lose my license because the courts have said a single violation of the record-keeping requirements, a single willful violation, you can lose your license. So here, I'm going to lose my license for a record-keeping error on a gun I didn't even sell from my inventory. So, so here you lost money on it, and you lost money. You on lost it. Yeah. So here becomes another issue. I mean, thank, but thank you for playing. <laughs> so, so again, let's look at the same instance. So Larry is going to be that FFL. He's going to perform that transfer, and, yeah. and Giannis comes in with a gun. He wants to transfer it over. What kind of guns he got? What kind of gun you handing over, Giannis? He ruined one of mine. Let's say he's trying to sell that. <laughs> he's trying to sell the ruined gun for for twenty bucks in a case oh. of, in a case of beer. So he, he turns that in. The background check is run, and uh, and it turns out that, that Larry's running the back. Background checks on the both of you, yep. and you and you both pop as prohibited. Mm-hmm. Now what do I do? Now what does he do? The dilemma of the double denial. So he's got he's got a he's got a basically a hot gun that he doesn't want to have, and he knows he can't hand it back to either one of you. Can't transfer it to you who intends to buy it because you're prohibited, and can't hand it back to you because it turns out you're prohibited. What does he do now? Citizens arrest. <laughs> so now he's got to go to court with with, file a, a with a guy you know that is shady, and he's and he's just handed you one gun that he's he's so already he, destroyed. The, the dealer then has to, would um, have to go to court and file a lawsuit. It's called an interpleader, and and give the gun to the court and say, look, I don't have ownership interest or title in this. These two guys, you you court figure it out. I'm out of here. 
or you got to go try to convince the local police department to take the rifle or whatever the firearm is. And what are they going to say? Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with this. Not my problem. <laughs> yeah. Because what are they going to do with it? You'd have to find somebody else to transfer the gun to. There's a lot of details about it that I... Uh, because no one hadn't thought about it. It, it, or, or it sounds do do? great in theory. It really does. But once well, you start no. digging into it, then it starts to, well, how do you, how do you make this work? But yeah, my resistance to it, my resistance to it was based largely on how I know that, um, how I know that like in my family, in my circle, in my world, how like law-abiding people, uh, you know, how we do our business go about our business sure. right and so it was like, like, look at, I never looked at it from I never looked at it from dealer industry perspective it was just looking at like just our common practices and ways in which they would be upset and kind of destroyed but without you know without really knowing the details of from the from the sales perspective and and again you do you, know, you do a private party background check but if the background check database is inaccurate and incomplete what have you accomplished? Why don't we work on getting the records into the system that should be there in the first place? Montana needs to change their law. I love Montana, but you know they got to change their law. And you know, the, the, and the what we found was, <clears throat> I'll give you a real world example from our Fix Next campaign. The Washington Navy Yard shooting, right, took place. Several people were killed. Turns out, as is often the case in these terrible events. The shooter was mentally ill, right? Paranoid schizophrenic. He um, purchased a gun, a, a pump shotgun from a dealer in Virginia where he lived, passed the background check, um, and that's the firearm he used. And he killed a lot of people. Not long before he purchased the firearm, he had been in Rhode Island uh, on some work assignment and was like off his rocker. And the police get called, and they take him to a hospital. He was not involuntarily committed in Rhode Island. But let's assume he had been involuntarily committed. Now he's a prohibited person. Well, at some point he gets out, goes back to Virginia. Rhode Island at the time did not put the records into Nix. So he would have gotten out of Rhode Island, gone back to Virginia, gone to the dealer, bought that shotgun and passed the background check because Rhode Island didn't put the records in. We were working on Rhode Island to try to get them to change the law when the Washington Navy Yard shooting occurred. And they weren't going to do it. They were going to study it, which is <laughs> lobby code for like kill the bill, right? They were going to go study it. They weren't going to pass the law to change it, to require Rhode Island to put the records in. We went back to Rhode Island and said, look what happened. We walked them through. Said, this is exactly what we're talking about. Within 24 hours, they passed the bill. Rhode Island now puts the records into the system. Industry did that. Nobody else. I'm, I'm real eager to get on to Sunday hunting and lead ammo, but I, uh, stay on this for a second. Are there, are there Second Amendment advocates? I'm, I'm, I'm not asking. I know the answer to this, but give me their perspective. There are Second Amendment advocates, though, who, are, who presumably are uneasy with fixniks. Yes, there, there no, was. A, what, what's that argument there? That it's like a, it's like a government imposition on your rights. Well, and, I, I, it's, there it's, are, it's, <clears throat> there's a small segment um, within the Second Amendment community who doesn't think there should be background checks. We happen not to 
to agree with that. Um, the argument that we heard in opposition to the fixed NICS legislation or that we hear uh, when we work the issue in the states is, you know, uh, that the people who aren't prohibited, their records are going to get into the system and then people are going to be denied um, the ability to purchase a firearm when they're not a prohibited person. Mm -hmm. But there is an appeal process um, that works very well. In fact, NICS has just substantially improved that. They demonstrated for us when we went to visit them at the end of October. Uh, so, and nothing in fixed NICS is about expanding. In fact, we're very clear about that. We're not looking to expand who is prohibited. We just want the records of those that are under current law prohibited put into the system so the dealer knows that when they transfer the firearm, they can rely upon the accuracy of the background check. So they're not selling a gun, transferring a gun to a prohibited person. And the fixed next legislation passed overwhelmingly. 78 co-sponsors in the Senate. You couldn't get 78 senators to sign a birthday card. <laughs> and they all got on this bill. Those who were pro and right. those who were against. Do you know the Wilderness Act? Uh, 99. Yeah. After 20 years of trying to get it through, 99 to 1. Yeah. And the one dissenting vote thought it wasn't, uh, didn't go far enough. <laughs> right. Those days are gone, man. I'm getting a bunch of people to agree yeah. on something. Maybe someday we'll return to that. But I don't, I don't, you know, it's hard to picture. You know, a lot of non-controversial legislation passes on unanimous consent. I mean, I think if, if we tried to pass the lands package at the end of last Congress on unanimous consent, one, one or two senators blocked unanimous consent. And there was no time left. It isn't like the sound of that, huh? Unanimous. What the hell's that? <laughs> well, they had they, it, um, it was Senator Lee and Senator Paul, but primarily oh, okay, Senator yeah. Lee. And there was a very heated exchange on the floor of the Senate between uh, Senator Murkowski, Senator Gardner, uh, <clears throat> and and uh, Senator Cantwell, who were the primary backers of the legislation. And there was, as you know, lots and lots in that bill, not, not just the, the range bill which was our primary focus. But they didn't like uh, you know, a provision. He wanted language change, and, and he blocked it because you can do that in the Senate. One person can stand up and block unanimous consent. Mm -hmm. um, but so, okay, so now they're doing the bill again, the exact same language, and running it through the, you know, the, the parliamentary process, which takes a while, but um, he won't be able, you know, he may offer amendments and... Uh, <laughs> You know, those amendments will either get voted on or not um, if he offers them. And, uh, but I, he can't, I don't see how he can stop the bill passing the Senate. W what happens on the House now that the Democrats are, are in control, whether it will move in House natural resources remains to be seen. I hope it will because Chairman Grijalva, when he was ranking in the last Congress, supported the package. So hopefully um, that hasn't changed. We'll see. Hopefully we'll see. Sunday hunting. Really important. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I was glad to see um, there were allies on this issue. Oh, because it, 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 it drives me crazy. And I, but I see that you guys have like an industry perspective where I see that you you frame it around some economic factors. Well, that's that's how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> I just frame it around like um, so that I just frame it around what I think. Amer, you know. Well, just my vision of America when I right. visualize you, America in its well, best yeah. form. That if you can tailgate on a Sunday, you should be able to go home. I just pictured that, like, uh, that the fact that there are states where someone can't opt. Right. 
where someone can't opt to hunt on a Sunday. Yanni got screwed by Sunday hunting laws mm-hmm. recently. Tell that. Over the, uh, the uh, Christmas and New Year holiday, I was in North Carolina. And I mean, I was halfway into the truck and uh, realized I'm like, ah, oh, better check on that. Sure enough, private land only. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's so like, yeah, it's, 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 it's the same where I, I live in Virginia, same private land only on Sundays. So the su- NSSF launched the Sunday Hunting Initiative. We have partners in Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, their National Assembly of Sportsman's Caucuses, NRA, SCI, um, uh, you know, or, or it's really the sort of team. <clears throat> and most people uh, in the country have no idea that there's these old colonial blue laws. Uh, in it was 13 states, we made progress, but all along, you know, up and down the East Coast, the, the, the original colonies, basically. Um, <clears throat> there's no science behind it. it you know, it's just, it was uh, a vestige of colonial law. But but it was, it was I have to, um, I have to assume that it had to do with like enforcing church attendance. Uh, it was religious based, you know, no alcohol, no hunting on Sundays. And, and so, yeah. It That's was, why it's interesting to see like very, like to see deeply conservative leaning organizations in opposition to Sunday hunting because you feel like it would put them up against the thing where they're, where they're like up against a sort of religious ruling. So every, it, it's interesting. Um, and we've made great progress uh, on our Sunday hunting. And it's really important because in those states, you know, Effectively, for many hunters, you're doubling the hunting season, right? If yeah. you're you're you working Mon- you work on Monday, Friday, Saturday, you got to take Johnny to soccer the game or whatever. You got the honey do list. You got to you only have Sunday. You can't hunt on Sunday, so you don't hunt, and then you don't take Johnny hunting, and you don't pass down the tradition. Now, some like Pennsylvania, huge number of hunting licenses. Uh, there's no Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, so you know we started with Virginia. Then West Virginia and Maryland and North Carolina, South Carolina. We actually got a bill out of committee for the first time in the Pennsylvania Senate, eight uh, three. Yesterday. Yesterday. Is that's op- an enormous step forward for is us in Pennsylvania? Is the opposition now? Is the opposition the religious community or is the opposition anti hunters? The, the interesting thing is, it is uh, the opposition varies from state to state. In Pennsylvania, the primary opposition uh, is the Farm Bureau. In North Carolina, oh, it why? was the Christian right. Uh, I can't tell you why. They just know. We don't do that in Pennsylvania. Just because we don't. We just because we don't. I just know we don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, in Maine, uh, oddly enough, one of the major forces uh, in opposition is the guides. They don't want to work on Sunday. <laughs> you don't have to work on Sunday. No one's making you work on Sunday. You've got to be kidding. No I'm not way. kidding. So, so the Farm Bureau... The they don't want boss, the boss man calling <laughs> up. The, the, uh, in Pennsylvania, the Farm Bureau uh, would say, uh, you know, uh, the farmers don't want to be disturbed on Sunday because if, you know, they don't want people coming on the land on Sunday uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, if they shoot the deer one piece of property and it goes onto the farmer's property they got they got to get permission to go retrieve the the deer right so they but um but it really wasn't a persuasive argument we said we'll put we'll we'll pay for signs you can put up saying you know no hunting you know you can post no hunting on Sundays on you know so a lot of times it's okay private land we'll just do private land take whatever we can get or public land and we got to change in North Carolina you know, uh, private land, because the, the part of the argument we would encounter would be from like 
hikers or uh, equestrian people like to ride their horses on public, you know, say, well, you know, we don't want to get, you know, accidentally shot by a hunter, you know. Well, it doesn't happen on, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. What makes you think it's going to happen on Sunday? Well, that's our day. We should be our day. Um, so, we, you know, we sort of whatever we can get, you know, and then just go back and try again for more later. But we've made great progress. Um, you know, yesterday's vote in Pennsylvania was was an enormous step forward for us. Explain yeah. what happened there. Uh, one, of, the, one of our one of our guys, Brody Henderson, he uh, he's Pennsylvania. We got a couple Pennsylvania guys we work with. And they, so we, they talk about this all the time. So we were able finally to get a bill out of committee in the Senate, eight to three, in favor of you know giving the state fishing game agency the authority. Oh, okay. Uh, to what, permit and, Sunday hunting doesn't require. I mean, and what, do you, what way do you think they'll lean? The oh, wait, the, the, the commission wants it. They support okay. it. Yeah. They publicly come out and said they support yeah. it. So, so but to, to your earlier point, so one of the things we did as industry is to try to say, you know, it's access. We want to pass on the tradition. You know, you can do all these other things on Sunday. You can play golf. You can fish. You, you know, golf, by the way, is a four-letter word. Those are not the birdies we think you should be shooting. Yeah. <laughs> you can go shooting on Sundays. Yeah, but you can't hunt. So... Uh, but then part of what we did was to show the economic impact allowing Sunday hunting would yeah, have. That's where it got, gets interesting. And it's yeah. significant, right? So you look at Pennsylvania. Uh, and so what what happens is, if you're in New York, you won't go on a hunting trip on a weekend to Pennsylvania because you can only hunt on Saturday, right? So <clears throat> Pennsylvania misses that economic opportunity. New York used to have restrictions. Ohio used to have restrictions. And they've been chipped away at over time. But about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, we, we put a real focus on, like, how can we really, what's a way we can really drive the needle on hunting? And said so it's it's changing sunny hunting laws on the East Coast. And, you know, we're making progress. Not easy. Yeah, we're still fighting it in Maryland. Right yes. now, Maryland is, uh, there are some counties, and so now there's the push to, to finish up all the rest of the counties to let the counties go. And it's, it's that progression uh, here and there. So it used to be Maryland wouldn't even touch it, and now they're right county by county, and we're, we're pushing a little bit more and more. As well, I mean, they're pushing a part of that same Families of Field program. They're right. pushing the mentorship bills right. to try and allow, so that way you can take your 10-year-old uh, out hunting, or you can take someone, even an adult who wants to get out and hunt the first time, they don't have to buy, it's kind of a try before you buy program is you can buy a license at a reduced rate as long as you're going out with someone who's going to mentor you through that process yeah we did that in michigan this yeah. past uh, spring yep. and it was great yeah it was real nice so we had some guys never colleagues had never, yeah, yeah. had never been hunting were curious about it um you know for for a bunch of reasons it was uh they lived in california it was like a bunch of reasons that would have been hard for them to get through just onerous for them to like, hey, let's go hunting turkeys all of a sudden and then do hunter safety. But in this case, with a mentor program, you're able to, you know, you're, you're like with them and you're physically next to each yep, other, yep. Uh, able to take them out on the first hunt. And which winds up being in that kind of relationship, I feel, that that mentored standing next to each other relationship it winds up being like very educational. It's critical around even you know around safety issues. In fact, right. I think if you're going to have someone who if you're going to have an experienced hunter with an inexperienced hunter, I feel that that time together is as instructive or probably more instructive at that phase in their journey than sitting through like 
You're right. I mean, that's, that's, that's the incubation of a new hunter. Yeah. You're, you're teaching them the traditions. You're teaching them the rules, the left and right. So this is where you step. This is where you don't step. This is how you carry your rifle. This is when you load your rifle. This is when you don't have your rifle loaded. Those are all the things that we were, we were taught by our folks when we went out and learned from the folks who taught us. And, and there's a little bit of a gap. We want to we kind of yeah, close that I mean, gap. You're not, pe- someone's not going to wake up one morning and say, well, I think I'll try hunting. You wouldn't know the first thing, right? How to get started. So people do do that, and they struggle. Yeah, some, and some I, are successful, but but mostly, you know, you know, that's the exception, right? People just say, uh, well, "I'll go play golf." <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, because I can go get a lesson right down the street. So mentoring is critical to passing the tradition and the heritage on. Yeah, yeah, I like I like the program, and I think you know I know there's some talk about and, and like in this case there was one the age issue is a big factor. Was it too. one year? These guys were. You know, guys in their twenties and thirties. You could do it. Two, some some two states years. are going to two years. Yeah, you could do it two before you had to show up. Right. You know, with the proper the hunter ad. Yeah, they're still the buying a license. Yes, yeah. I don't know have the numbers in front of me, but um, there was a press conference at Chacho about Famous Field, and it, it reached a milestone in the number of apprentice licenses, and uh, it's been very successful. Um, and the work continues to, and there was a lot of resistance from. Hunter Ed uh, guys um, to the families of field effort. It's just right? a, oh yeah, yeah. but it's a collaborative effort. NSSF is part of it. Sportsman's Alliance, National Wild Turkey Federation, and uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, and and their National Assembly of Sportsman's Caucuses. And the, and the work continues. My my resistance to it was was based on bitterness. Because when I was a kid, you had to be fourteen <laughs> in Michigan. In Michigan, yeah, when I was growing up, you had to be fourteen. Yeah, my dad didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that, but you're supposed to be 14 to rifle hunt deer, and then all of a sudden, I'm talking to buddies of mine from back home, and they're out there with their 10 and 11 year olds. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're supposed to wait forever. You know, yeah. you gotta watch your. But own. it's you gotta be I mean, in your <clears throat> teens and still watching your dad. So still what, watching your dad. Hunt. What really drove <clears throat> what drove the families of field was you know studies coming out that showed that you know if you did not get a young person in the field <clears throat> by a certain age. You lost them, yeah. right? They're they're playing video games. They're getting you know their their time is occupied by other things, <clears throat> and it's very hard to get them, you know, to start when they're sixteen, seventeen, right? They, you, you gotta engage them uh, earlier, otherwise, they're you know you're not gonna be able to. There's too much competition uh, out there, <clears throat> and it's it's proven to be pretty successful. Where I live, <clears throat> uh, where I live, my boy can. No boy, my boy and my girl and my other boy uh, can hunt with me when they're ten, and then hunt unaccompanied after they do hunter safety. Right. Once they're twelve. Right. So we're, he he's counting the days, man. I can't yeah. wait. And there's a youth there's a youth season there for deer. Right. There's a youth season for waterfowl. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, so we did Sunday hunting. We jumped ahead of ourselves and got into some youth stuff. Lead ammo. Yeah. Big, big challenge. Some would say it's the biggest threat to the industry, banning lead ammunition, like we saw in, in California. Well, yeah, so our, you know, yeah. our view on uh, on the issue is is this. <clears throat> and you mentioned <clears throat> the point earlier. You manage wildlife populations. You don't manage to prevent harm to individual animals because it, if wildlife no. management becomes about preventing harm to individual animals, guess what? You just made the argument for banning hunting. Right and fences and glass right. windows. Yeah. So, so our view is that decisions on this issue should be 
evidence-based, based on science, that's clear, that shows that there's an adverse population impact. And then if that's the case, the Fish and Game Agency should look at what are the options available to address the problem, to, to turn it around. And that may or may not include banning ammunition, certain types of ammunition. But you should look at what are the, the full spectrum of, of things you can do. Uh, and then uh, we think a factor in the decision should be what is the, you know, what is the effective and least costly to the hunter? Because if you, you know, increase cost, you know, just basic economics, right, you're, you're going to have less participation. And that may or may not result in banning lead ammunition in an area. And, and we think the, the solution should be as localized as necessary. Um, you know, if you've got a problem in a particular localized area, that doesn't mean you have to adopt a statewide ban. California started in the Condor region and then expanded statewide. Um, we think, without question, that uh, a good part of the push for banning lead ammunition comes from the anti-hunting groups. I mean, when <laughs> the Humane Society of the United States um, you know, supports banning lead ammunition and wants people to hunt with copper ammunition. I mean, are you serious? I mean, now you know, HSUS is okay with hunting as so long as you're not using lead ammunition. That's laughable on its face. So Yeah, you consider the source on Right. It. So if there's a pot, and, and we don't see population impacts, right? I mean, even with the condor, it's clear that lead, they were getting lead from other sources. Paint chips on, on the water towers. And the, the core of the basis for the law in California was um, a study that is totally flawed and not credible that was pushed by the folks out there um, to became the basis for why they banned lead ammunition for hunting in the entire state. And we said, uh, look, if you do this, here's the consequences. You're gonna, people are going to hunt less, and they're going to hunt outside the state. And, and there is not enough lead or non-lead ammunition produced in the country to meet the demand of hunters in California. So the industry makes non-lead ammunition, uh, alternative ammunition, in response to consumer demand. And that demand amounts to less than 1% of the entire ammunition market. Is that right? Yes. What about when you break it down into center fire? So 95% of ammunition is um, metallic ammunition, lead ammunition. 5% is alternative ammunition. Four of the 5% is shot shell. The rest is, uh, you know, for it, some of it's frangible ammunition, a small part, but the, that's, that's how much demand there is for uh, non-lead ammunition. And our view is, look, if hunters want to use alternative ammunition, that should be their choice, right? I mean, and... <laughs> The industry will make it in response to consumer demand, like any any yeah. other product. That's the thing. I feel, like an annoyance I find in this debate is if people are, it's become so contentious that if people talk about how they use monolithic bullets or use copper, some people feel that just the simple fact of you using it is condemnation of lead. Even though I first became introduced to it, certainly by people who are just motivated by performance. Right, but it's like, it, it, but sometimes people will jump on you. You know, if you use solid copper, they'll act like somehow you don't support lead. And I think it's just like one of those things. That it's just a sensitive world because we're all like really embroiled 
and it's a passion, it's a passion based thing, and there's sensitivities afloat. But it just winds up being like a really interesting conversation of individual, like to say, like individually, for whatever reason, performance, um, concerns, even they don't seem to be the people have concerns about ingesting bullet lead absent any documentation that hunters have elevated lead levels. And that evidence doesn't exist. In fact, quite the contrary, right? But but regardless, like you might, whatever reason, like someone might decide to do it. And I think that you, again, industry will match up with people's choices, but there's, there's needs to be ability to say like, this is what I personally choose. Does that mean that I want to legislate it? Does, does that mean I want to legislate it and, and make it mandatory for all people right. to conform to the decisions that I've personally made? And we think it's uh, the hunter's choice if they want to use that product for performance or because they think it's more environmentally sensitive. You know, the more the industry will respond to consumer demand, and and more will be produced. I just, those just are the facts that it's less than one percent. <clears throat> we don't think it's really. You know, this should be a decision for the state fishing game agencies. They're the professionals. They're the ones with the expertise in wildlife management. We don't think it should be regulated by legislature because other, you know, that's, you know, that's why the state agencies exist. Although, I mean, if you had an out of control state agency, maybe you would need legislation to, uh, if they weren't making a science based decision. But, you know, so it's, you manage populations. If there's a population impact and you determine it's coming you know, from lead ammunition, what are the options? So, for example, dove. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> if you ban um, lead shot for dove hunting, I mean, it makes dove hunting really expensive, right? And so what, happened, what would happen to dove hunting? It would go down precipitously. Do you need to ban lead for, uh, you know, dove hunting? Well, I don't see any evidence of, of adverse population impacts on doves. I mean, people have been shooting doves in Argentina, for example, like crazy amounts of, of lead shot, and there are, there's no shortage of doves in Argentina, for example. It's the most harvested game animal in America. Right. 10, and, mil- 10 million. And I've talked to you know the former director of Fish and Wildlife, like because uh, Missouri, for example, was looking at you know banning the use of lead shot for dove hunting and say, so, you know, are there other things you can do short of banning the product that would adequately address the problem? And one of the things you can do is till the soil, right? Turn the soil over so it's not accessible or rotate the dove fields. Um, so <clears throat> there, you know, there are things that can be done short of an outright ban. And again, if there's, you know, shouldn't ban it unless there's population impacts. What's your perspective? We hear a lot on this. Like the bald eagle is used as the symbol of the other side, right? It's, it evokes a lot of emotion. Yeah, but that was DDT. Right. And it's eagle populations are soaring, pardon the pun, right? And um, most states don't even bother counting nesting pairs anymore because they're so plentiful. But we see story after story after story, you know, um, and, and they're almost indistinguishable. It's like a cookie cutter. And, and yep. this is coming from, you know, from anti hunting groups, we're convinced. You know that they hold up a single eagle um, that's in a in a um, you know avian rescue rescue thing and or place and <clears throat> they extrapolate that you know there's this big problem and you have to ban lead ammunition when in reality 
you know, the populations of eagles are soaring. And there was that study in Iowa done a couple of years ago. You know, it's like, we, like it's a guy at Federal uh, who works on conservation issues, Ryan Bronson. Yeah. And you know Ryan, great guy. He, you know, he's often has said in, in some of these state fishing game agency meetings that we go to, it's like, look, if you look for... Uh, sick people in the hospital, guess what you're going to find? Sick people. But you can't extrapolate from the sick person in the hospital that there's this problem outside of the hospital. And that's what that study in Iowa did. It actually went out and looked at, you know, uh, you know the eagle population and said it was fine. There wasn't any evidence of, of a, a problem. <clears throat> so they, they, you know, they find one eagle, they bring it and they extrapolate from there and say, well, we got a band lead ammunition. When, you know, and it's the hunters and the conservation dollars back, pivoting back to Pittman Robertson, who who paid for the restoration of the eagle? Hunters did. You can thank a hunter, right? So, you're gonna you're gonna ban traditional ammunition without evidence that there's a population impact, and there's even less evidence that there's a human health risk. I mean, the study the CDC did in in, in North Dakota, yeah. hunters had lower than uh, average than the pop than the the control group. Lower than the average person walking around in the street. Everybody in this, we right, all have some level of, of lead in our blood, right? Oh, yeah. it, it's, but probably probably a, probably a uh, factor of predominantly rural. Yeah. So, yeah. and hunters who had hunted the longest had even lower levels. So, if there was this idea that well, if you keep eating game harvested with traditional ammunition, lead's going to build up in your blood. Well, then these hunters that have been hunting the longest should have had higher readings, and they actually had lower readings. So uh, that study... Um, yeah, it probably like diminished exposure to all... Diminished exposure right. to all the other ways you ingest lead. And nobody yeah. in the study had uh, a lead level that was remotely approaching the threshold of concern for a child, let alone adults, right? And there was one person in the study, as I recall... Um, that had levels about the level of concern for a child, but this was an adult, but they had no, they couldn't say that lead was sourced from consuming game. And Iowa has been checking the blood lead levels of their people in the state for years, right? A lot of hunting in, in Iowa. They've never seen it. There's never been a documented case of anybody in the United States having elevated lead levels, let alone lead poisoning from consuming game harvested with traditional ammunition. So what was your perspective in the early 90s when they banned lead ammunition for migratory waterfowl. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocket Money. 
Tagsmeeater.com slash eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. So, I mean, I know that yeah, you, that, you, you before, yeah, before uh, that predates me, but what I've heard is that... Um, that uh, and I, this is just what I've heard in uh, over the years is that there really wasn't good science that that uh, it was having a population impact, but basically it came down to the judge saying, either you agree to this or I'm going to ban uh, waterfowl hunting nationwide, and uh, and so sort of that's how it came to be. But I mean, we're not debating, you know, this issue now, thirty years later, right? So yeah. Um, my dad said that, uh, <laughs> but it did have an impact on on duck hunting in the United States. My dad talked about because I was just starting to hunt then, um, just starting to legally hunt. My dad talked about people quitting hunting. Yeah, but then people adjusted to it over time. Mm-hmm. But so, but as an organization, what's your what's your perspective on, um, like you represent industry, okay, and you want things to be smooth for the industry. What is your perspective on cases and that, and. and like let's say around letters, other hypotheticals, uh, where a wildlife management agency is making a wildlife-based decision. Here's a good hypothetical. I heard a story one time. Heard a story that Florida 
used to, or Florida had a thing where they allowed rifle hunting for turkeys in the spring. Okay? Well, let's just say there's a, there's, okay. a sta- yeah. there's a state that allows rifle hunting for turkeys in the spring. And someone points out that you don't wear a hunter's orange when you're hunting turkeys because they see the orange and they're spooked. Mm-hmm. Um, people are on the ground. People are mimicking the sounds of female turkeys. And the turkey hunting community, let's say in a hypothetical mm-hmm. state, the turkey hunting community says, man, let's just, keep, let's just stick it to shotguns because then we're, everyone's safer out in the woods. And this is traditionally, you know, all across the country, people hunt with shotguns in the spring. Mm-hmm. And we're going to conform to that norm as suggested by turkey hunters. Mm-hmm. The game agency's behind it. Now, what if someone looks and says, what might be a hunter issue, a game management issue, but someone looks and says, nope, that's a gun issue. You're infringing gun rights. Yeah. How, do you na- like, how do you navigate that if, if you do? That, uh, the state fishing game agencies <clears throat> you know, have the authority to, to regulate the seasons, regulate the implements used for taking game. We, we have no problem with that. So if that were going <laughs> I mean, on... That, I mean, I think it's a, it's a safety issue, right? Yeah. I mean, the bullets from a rifle travel a lot further than pellets from a shotgun so instinctively you don't see that and think that's a fight i'm going to wade into we would that's not a fight we would get involved in i, I mean think about it it's even even where i live in virginia there are some counties that are closer here to to the dc area where you can only hunt with archery equipment because mm-hmm. it's so urban so so densely populated and then as you start to get a little bit further out okay you can hunt with a shotgun and then once you get to these counties okay now you can hunt with a rifle we don't have an issue with that. I mean, it's, it's a safety issue. But you could see, as much as I'm comfortable with that stuff, you could see that becoming a tool used by anti-hunters. And so it's like, I guess that's kind of the broader point I'm making, is you, you always need to like consider the source on things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because there's ideas, like you said, like the abuse of, the, the abuse of lead ammo bans in California, where at a, there's, there's an isolated instance or an isolated case with migratory waterfowl say we look at say from a management perspective this makes sense someone then looks and it says huh um i'm gonna now use manipulate this and use this as a general tool to <laughs> curb people's rights sure so, so you, it, you're it, it's, seeing, it's sellable you're seeing that happen right now in oregon so in oregon they've got several bills that we're trying to push back on uh that would include uh you know a 14-day waiting period uh, a limit of only 20 rounds a month and a five round magazine capacity 20 oh, rounds a month 20 rounds a month so you couldn't you shoot around a skeet trap sporting clay you gotta save up all year for duck season <laughs> but exactly but on top of that you you also looking at they're they're debating right now whether they're going to have a ban on lead ammunition for anyone between the ages of eighteen and twenty one. Right, on, I, I on noticed, the, and, and the the argument they make is it's public health. The, see, this is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. Where you wind up into a situation where it's just it, it's like so clearly coming from the perspective of someone who yes. is like I want to whittle away at. I want to whittle away at this community or whittle away at people's rights. What are the things I can use to get there? So what we're seeing is uh, Connecticut, there was a, a bill introduced to have a 50% tax on ammunition. Yep. Um, we've seen that in Seattle, yeah. Cook County, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and you know, we see this in, in Oregon. The other thing we're seeing is, uh, you know, uh, we saw it in Florida, 
you know, say you, you cannot purchase long guns until you're 21. So federal law now says you can't purchase a handgun until you're 21. <clears throat> so now you're 18, 19, and 20. That's federal law now. Federal law now says you have to be 21 to purchase that's, a handgun. That's 1968 Gun Control Act. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So if you ban uh, under state law, like in Florida, for example, and there's lawsuit pending, <laughs> you're 18, 19, and 20, and you can't purchase a long gun, you also can't purchase a handgun. You're an adult. You could be in the military, or you know, you you could be the spouse of somebody in the military. You could have a child. You could, you know, um, you can't purchase a gun for target shooting. You can't purchase a gun for hunting, and you can't purchase a gun for self defense. To us, that is clearly a violation of the Second Amendment. We don't even think that's a close call. So again, you're looking at someone 18 years old, fully vested in their rights. They can vote. Freedom of speech, freedom of exercise of religion, freedom of assembly, but you can't exercise your Second Amendment rights. You can't buy a gun until you're 21. I wonder why we're 21, because of drinking laws? I think it's an mm-hmm. arbitrary number that they picked out of the air. Yeah, I mean, you know, in 1968, long before Heller was decided, right? So you also can't buy handguns across state lines. I'm trying to think of how I had I had a, even from a deal. Even I had a hand dealer. going. I was 17. I'm trying to think of how. I guess my dad just gave me a hand. Yeah, but you couldn't. You cannot walk into a gun store, licensee, and purchase a handgun unless you're 21. And if you're in Montana. You cannot drive into Wyoming, go to a licensed dealer in Wyoming, and purchase a handgun from that dealer, even if you're 21 or older. You cannot buy a handgun across state lines. So, yeah, I mean, in case of point, when I was in the military, I could buy a handgun in any state I was stationed in because of virtue of my, my military orders. Now, my wife, I was in New Hampshire resident while I was in the military. My wife was a Texas resident. She maintained her Texas residency. For her to buy a handgun, she would either have to go back to Texas or she would have to change her residency every three years every time we moved. So you're putting that huge burden on people. What is the... What is the issue with the limit, the, the Oregon thing, which I can't picture is going to get anywhere, or am I wrong? Tw- the 20 rounds, so what is it again? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so you can Oregon, only buy 20 rounds a month. 20 rounds a month. So Oregon State. But isn't the box shotgun shells 25? Yes. State Bill 501. <laughs> Yeah, so figure that one out. So and and, and again, how do you enforce <laughs> There's that? There's no so way that's going to come go back. So <laughs> next month for, the, for these five. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so it, that's not going to go anywhere, is it? I don't. I, I, I would, would not, not take. I anything. would not say no. Not in Oregon, right? Not now. Not in Oregon. Yeah. So I mean, it's think about it. Is we go to we're going to go out duck hunting, and I'm a terrible shot, and I can't shoot anything. So I blow through twenty rounds right away trying to shoot my first two ducks, and then I'm like, I'm out of ammo. Uh, I look at you and say, Stevie, let me get some shots from you so I can continue to shoot. Am I a violation of the law now because I'm now transferring ammo to me? Are you violating the law because you're hand- handing ammo to me? I guess I can't ask you to pay me back for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's only got 20 himself, so he's not giving you any. <laughs> exactly. You're out of luck. What, what, other, uh, what other things are you guys watching for that make you... Um, you know, I, I guess like not, not ones that... Not pieces of legislation... Like again, man, I don't know. That's hard, very hard for me to picture. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the cl- the political climate there. That's very hard for me to picture passing. Like, Oregon it seems like it's is California tremendous, North. Yeah, it's it's tough. Tremendous if resistance. Your, your listeners that live in Oregon, pick up a phone, call your state senator, and call your representative. Make sure they know how ridiculous that is. And it includes shotgun shells. Yeah. 
Okay, what are the what are the pieces of legislation that you're looking at and uh, the ones you're most leery of coming up? Uh, we the age base. I know you spend some time. That on age, age base, base is a concern. Uh, attempts to ban modern sporting rifles. We see that. You know, um, we're we're looking at that in in uh, several or, states. Yeah, yeah, maybe Nevada, maybe Oregon, maybe Illinois, uh, Illinois Colorado's Colorado. Yep. So we're concerned about that. Um, those are by far the most popular rifles being sold in the United States. Articulate for me your perspective on it. it it's a semi-automatic rifle. Um, they are uh, like the 94 ban that was in place for 10 years. They would be banning the products based on cosmetic features. So there's no uh, effect on how the firearm functions. Semi-automatic firearms have been in civilian possession for well over 100 years. Uh, studies that were done by the government on the 94 Clinton gun ban showed that it had absolutely no impact on reducing crime in the United States. We also had a magazine capacity restriction for 10 years. It had absolutely no impact on reducing crime. Uh, it's that no impact on reducing crime in the states that, that have passed it. Um, so uh, you're just denying people a rifle that uh, they want to purchase for lawful purposes. Primarily target shooting is the main use increasingly hunting and uh, also for um, personal protection, self-defense. Well, I was not young. I was, I don't know. I was out of high school, but I just didn't follow things as closely then. What did the night, the 94 ban, was that at the time was, ad were adoption rates of AR so low that there wasn't any resistance or was that like a contentious oh, issue? Oh no, it was extremely contentious. Was, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if it was like one of those things where it wasn't, they weren't in yeah. widespread use so it kind of went on, not unnoticed, but it they wasn't They have grown in popularity I mean, <clears> since the sunset in 04, partly because the, the sunset and then also largely, as we talked earlier, uh, people that served in the military came back from overseas or being in the military and wanted to purchase these firearms for uh, target shooting primarily. More than 16 million modern sporting rifles are in private ownership today. Or, 16 yeah. million. More than 16 million. 16 million just since 94. They've, yep. you, you, they've been on the commercial market since 1963. There's a 1961 Colt Sporter ad out there talking about mm -hmm. hunting with the Colt Sporter rifle. Which was an AR-15. Yep. What What do people do in states where you know? Okay, like if you're hunting, uh, you're hunting waterfowl. You have a three shot mm -hmm. limit, so you can only have three shots in right. your shotgun. Right. And that's a not a vestige. I mean, it has to do with in order to have plenty of opportunity for everyone to hunt. State game agencies need to, in federal, you know, in this case, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they take measures to to limit efficacy mm -hmm. so that you can spread that. So it's like this matter. Right. We, we all hear like fair chase, which is a problematic term, but fair share, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're expanding mm -hmm. things. So if you have states that have mag, like states that have magazine capacities, what do AR hunters do if you have a state where you have a four shot limit? So that you, um, I, I've you know models with smaller magazines that are you know camoed out and uh, you know sold for the hunting market, <clears throat> or you just have a larger magazine but you can only have so many rounds. So in people it. people produce that. Mm -hmm. I've never I've never hunted with one. I've shot. Yeah. I've never hunted with one. Yeah, I mean it's 
It's a small part of the hunting market. I mean, it's it's uh, small in the hunting world. Yeah, but, but growing. It's growing. Yeah. I've hunted with ARs. <laughs> I've hunted. Uh, I've hunted predators. I've hunted hogs with them. Um, I so. you know people have hunted big game. Yeah, with them they come. You know, the other side. You know, they just, they don't understand that it comes in different calibers, right? I mean, like we we did an exercise at a conference of state legislators. We had a a poster. We had. Uh, a Remington AR in camo. I think it was the R15. And I believe it was chambered in 308. And then we had a black Smith & Wesson M&P 22, 22 long rifle. And we had the two bullets like on the bottom of the poster in like actual size. And we asked state legislators from all over the country, um, okay, you know, which, is, you know, which goes to which? They invariably said, you know, like got it wrong. Or which, which, oh, that one, that's okay because it's camouflaged. The black one, oh, that's bad. Just like, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and they would just assume that the larger, you know, because they, all they hear right in the media is, you know, high-powered assault rifles. Most ARs, modern sporting rifles, come in two two three Remington, right? <clears throat> Most states will not let you hunt white-tailed deer with a two two three Remington. It's not powerful enough. But yep. you know, if you're prairie dogs, <clears throat> things like that, that's where the people use them a lot. Or hog hunting, feral hogs, and which is a great um, against great against coyotes. And coyotes, right? Awesome yeah. against coyotes. Yeah. So what's the, <laughs> what's the conversation that you have with states that are that are considering bans? <laughs> There's often not much of a conversation, right? I mean, they just nothing you can say they want to hear. They don't care, right? I mean, it's it's politically expedient, and they think it's popular politically, <clears throat> and they trade on the false information. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the facts. Um, I, I think an easy case to point is, is how quickly New York pushed through their Safe Gun Act right. and, and their gun laws that they're pushing through right now. They're right. literally days. It's their introduction, and... <laughs> Three days later, the governor signing it into law. There's no debate in the legis- on the bill. No, there's no public hearing. The, in New York, often the case, the bill isn't even written when they pass it. It's just like a concept, right? Here's an outline of what will be in it. And then they write it later. No, no kidding. There's no public hearings, no opportunity for people to come in and testify against it in New York. And the rest of the legislature doesn't see the bill. It's decided by the, you know, the head of the House, the head of the Senate, and the governor. Yeah. And that's what happened you know, the other day in New York. That a thing I'm a little bit guilty of is, you know, I've lived in a lot of states where you didn't feel that your rights were being infringed on, and you become not only passive, you just you don't you're not aware of what's going on. You become passive about the issues. So like, you know, like I just live in a lot of states like that. I spent time in Alaska, spent time in Montana. You just kind of like lose sight of what happens. I lived in New York for a while and living there, I, I really felt um, vi- like kind of like victimized. And you get the sense that sort of like there was a, there was a tacit governmental disapproval of your perspective and lifestyle. Yes. And it made <clears throat> to the point where you're engaged in lawful activities and you're someone who's accustomed to like enjoying certain liberties, you know, not enjoying, but exercising liberties and rights. 
and you come up against a system where you're like, man, I feel like the system is in some ways designed making to make it, yes. it very hard. Absolutely. For me, like, to make it very hard for me to be above the books. <laughs> they, like, for instance, yes. they limit on, <laughs> I had to have a while where I could only, you had to register everything and you could only register them at a certain cadence. Right. And being in the business that I'm in, um, it wound up being like restrictive, <coughs> restricting me to carry about what I view as a legitimate business enterprise. Yeah. And being there, but then also seeing evidence of the way that the people who don't care about doing things by the book, right? how they operated. And it just it well, felt like, yeah. and, and then and then you had like this heightened sense. You, then you developed this like really heightened sense of losing your rights. You're like, oh, you know, I want to, this is something I should be involved in. And then eventually I'm like out of there and take off and then kind of forget about the whole thing again yeah. because you take for granted that you can have a, you, you can have a rifle in your truck and it doesn't need to be right. in a hard case. And you can lend <laughs> your buddy your gun and you can have a closet that has a few cases of ammo in it yeah. and you lose sight of the whole yeah. thing. Well, I mean, so <clears throat> at the State of the Industry um, event at the SHOT Show, uh, our uh, pro, um, CEO, Steve Sinetti, spoke to this this sort of very issue, the, you know, the that in America, you know, I have the right to enjoy my activities. I like, you don't have to like hunting. You don't have to like shooting, but you should respect that I do. And you should respect that I should have the freedom to engage in these lawful activities. Uh, and, you know, you're infringing upon my liberty, my freedom. Uh, you're not making uh, the world a safer place. You're just, in, you're just restricting my rights. And, you know, in America, you should respect, you know, you don't have to agree with other people, but you should respect that they have the right to do these things and it's not causing problems. And, and to your point, all these, I mean, you hear it, it's almost cliche, but it's true. All these gun control laws only impact the law abiding. We had uh, Mark Robinson, um, the guy from the YouTube and the Greenville, um, Greensboro, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I'm going to obey the law, but the criminal is not, right? So all these laws don't don't stop the bad guy, right? I mean, the criminal is not going to pay attention to the law. I mean, it's kind of definitional, isn't it? I mean, that's... Yeah. And so take the case now that's going to the Supreme Court. Finally, after 10 years uh, from Heller, the Supreme this is Court an is, interesting case, is finally taking a case <clears throat> now that, you know, you have uh, Kavanaugh's on the court and Gorsuch on the court. They've taken a case, thankfully. No, we'll see what happens, but I think it's, it's hard to imagine in this case that... Um, Supreme Court doesn't rule that it feels like a slam dunk to me. I mean, I hate, hesitate to say that. But. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so in New York City, you can only have a pistol in your home with a permit, and you can take the pistol and go to a shooting range, and there are seven in the city of, within the five boroughs of the city of New York, and back. But the gun has to be unloaded; it has to be in a hard case and locked. Right. Um. Now let's say you live uh, in in uh, in Co-op City in in New York, which is close to the Westchester County border, <clears throat> and you want to go to a shooting range that's opened up in in Westchester County. You're outside of the city of New York. You cannot take your pistol, put it, unload it, put it in the case, lock the case, and go to Westchester to that range in Westchester County across the city line. You've committed a crime. 
let's say you have a weekend house or something like in uh, in the Catskills. You can't take that pistol, unload it, put it in the case, lock it, and drive to your weekend house in the Catskills. You've committed a crime. Let's say you decide, I'm out of here. I can't take New York City anymore. I'm moving to wherever, Montana. Yeah, I don't you know. Can't, <laughs> you can't take that firearm. You can't take that, that pistol, put it, unload it, put it in the case, lock the case, and drive to Montana. You've committed a crime. In the district court, the federal district court, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, it's in Manhattan, ruled that that, that did not violate the Second Amendment. Like, because, you know, the city had an interest in, like, you know, not having guns on the, you know, on the street. Now, I don't know one gangbanger, criminal, drug dealer in the five boroughs that is abiding by that law, right? I mean, how is this making New York City safer? I just cannot imagine. I had to spend that, that, that court hundreds, doesn't, I had to spend hundreds of dollars right, for a permit. Right. You're lucky to get one. And there was an article just the other day about the only people... Uh, in New York City, who are able to get carry permits are, you know, the rich and famous. Yeah. And there's a whole big scandal going on about bribes that were being taken. Well, within the pistol licensing unit within the NYPD, you know, some guy um, was caught taking bribes. To clear permits. Yeah. So explain the Supreme Court case that's coming up. So that's the New York... So someone, there's, someone, a, there's, there's an individual a, challenging... There's a lawsuit that challenged this... This requirement in New York City's law. So it's not that someone got busted and appealed up to the Supreme Court. No, they, they say, I want to be able to, you know, I, I should be able to go outside the city. So he's to my suing home. the law is unconstitutional. He's, right, that this this law is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment and also violates the um, right, you know, you have a constitutional right to travel, so I can't take my pistol with me. And, and that, um, so they sued, they lost at the district court, they lost at the Court of Appeals, and now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case. And I have a hard time imagining that the Supreme Court doesn't rule that that it goes too far, that that violates the Second Amendment. Because the court in Heller, for example, has already said, uh, and in McDonald, you ha the right, the Second Amendment involves two rights, the right to carry, the right to keep, and the right to carry, two rights. Keep and bear, yeah. Right, it's not one, it's two rights. Uh, and that those are common law rights that predated the Constitution. The Second Amendment didn't create those rights. It, it protected them, right? But those rights were already existing under English common law that was adopted by the United States, you know, after we won the War of Independence. And uh, so the court has said that the, the right to bear arms means to have it on your person, to carry it. So there have been some courts like the Seventh Circuit that say, no, you, you, and we've seen it in, in D.C., you have the right to carry a firearm, self-protection, which is why now every single state um, in the country has to allow some level of, of right to carry, right? The, the last state was, uh, I think, Wisconsin and, and Illinois were like the last two states, in the, you know, even in the District of Columbia. So now there are different, like, some states are shall issue. Some states now increasingly, including now most recently South Dakota, are a constitutional right to carry. You don't need the government's permission. Um, New Hampshire changed recently. Um, so that's a trend that's positive trend that's happening. Um, and and uh, 
other states, they, you know, you have to prove, like in Maryland, you have to, like, you know, prove you have a need uh, and get the blessing of the government in order to carry a firearm for self-protection. Interestingly, the District of Columbia, it's it's actually through the court decisions, uh, essentially a shall issue uh, jurisdiction. They they don't can't use their discretion to deny you, and we see that a lot, right, in other parts of the country where, you know. I like you. I'll give you one. I don't like you so much. You didn't contribute to my campaign or, you know, like, I don't like you or you're not my buddy. I'm not going to give it to you. And you see a lot of abuse of that discretion that yeah. takes place. So, I mean, it's the problem they're having in California right now. Right. Is, is it's county by county. The county sheriff gets to decide, well, Los Angeles County, good luck. You know, you go out to Kern uh, County where it's more rural and the county sheriff out there is good with it. He'll, he'll unless uh, he's got a need for you to not carry, he's going to give you a permit. Yeah. So... So your you know your constitutional rights shouldn't uh, be determined by the happenstance of geography. I remember years ago when my father went to get his concealed permit, he had to go up in front of the like, the, like uh, he had to go to the sheriff's office to go up in front of, like a board. Yeah. Some states have that, Connecticut. Yeah, this is long. I mean, this is this is long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, 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 he had to go and uh, he went. In front, I can't remember who it was, but like he went down to the sheriff's office and they had a panel of people, right? Who like conduct a little interview. Right, and he got a he got a his his concealed carrier, which I remember. And then, but the only thing he had was a twenty two. My, my, to, to buy my first handgun in North Carolina, I had to get permission from the county sheriff to buy, yeah. just to buy a handgun. Yeah. Right, lots changed. Since yeah, then. Yanni, what do you got, man? Uh, I guess uh, the one thing we haven't touched on, and maybe we could touch on, is what's uh, the NSF do, doing uh, in a proactive way about uh, gun violence. So. Actually, the industry is a long history of of having real solutions uh, and pursuing initiatives that you know will we think make for safer communities. Uh, so one example is um, uh, our Project Child Safe campaign, which we've been doing since about 1998, uh, where we, the industry, distribute. Um, firearm safety education kits that include a free gun lock, a cable style gun lock, which fits most number of actions. Uh, we've distributed, ready for this, over 38 million kits, 38 million locks uh, in every state and U.S. territory, partnering with over 15,000 uh, local law enforcement agencies as our distribution partner. Uh, we're very proud of that. We continue to do that. And as adjunct to that, since uh, 1996, 97, uh, manufacturers have been providing a locking device with each new firearm that they ship from the factory. So between the two, it's well over 100 million uh, locks distributed around the country. So how would you participate in the first one? You just go down to the local so police department? We, we get requests all the time. In fact, the demand outstrips uh, the supply of locks by three to one. You know, law enforcement agencies know about the program all over the country. They call and say, hey, can we get you know some locks? We're going to do a, you know, a, a community event. We're going to do a safety program. We, we want to distribute these. Our local, our local uh, gun shop when I was in Seattle, they would do Project Child right. Safe locks right. up there. Right. So we're really, really proud of that. And not exclusively, but I think we've helped contribute to the decline in accidents involving firearms. Um you know, accidental deaths involving firearms is um, at the lowest level it's ever been since record keeping began in, in 1903. It's incredibly rare, particularly for children. 
you know, uh, there are some states that don't have any accidents involving children, accidental deaths involving firearms. You're far more likely um, to die from, you know, a host of other causes, drowning, fires, poisoning, than you are, um, you know, with an accident involving a firearm. It makes the news when it happens, right? Particularly yeah. if it involves a child. But uh, and but so we distribute these locks. That's one program we do. We also have been doing with ATF since 1999 the campaign we call "Don't Lie for the Other Guy." That is uh, to assist law enforcement in educating and training retailers uh, and their staff on how to be better able to identify and prevent illegal straw purchases. Uh, and then a public service announcement component to the program to get the word out in the community that it's a serious crime to buy a gun for somebody else who can't. Um, and that if you do that, you're, you know, you lie on the 4473, uh, that it's a, a felony. You can go to prison for 10 years and you get a fine of up to a quarter million dollars. And yeah, for those of you that have never filled out that form, the question is basically that you're... Are you the actual You're the purchaser? actual buyer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And if you're not uh, um, the actual buyer, it's not actually for you, so you're, you know... Uh, your uh, felon boyfriend gets out of prison and wants, you know, and convinces, uh, you know, his girlfriend to go into a store and buy a handgun for him because he's going to use it to go rob the 7-Eleven. And she says, I'm, I'm the actual buyer. That's a crime. And you can go to prison uh, for that. And so, um, you know, we've been doing that campaign for a long time. Uh, with ATF as our partner, there's educational material for the retailer to to you know, help educate their staff what to be on the lookout for, what kind of questions to ask. I mean, and it can be very difficult for the the retailer to discern if somebody comes in and fills out the form and does, doesn't do anything that would cause you to be suspicious. Um, but again, also we have the public awareness campaign to tell the would-be straw purchaser long before they ever walk into the store that you know, don't lie for the other guy. You can go to prison. So that's another program we've been doing for a long time. Very successful. We've done it. You know, it's a national campaign. We've done it all over the country. We've distributed uh, the kits, the retailer education kits, to every retailer in the country, free. You know, you want one, we'll send it. You know, we we make it available at the, the dealer educational seminars that go on at the shot show and things like that. Uh, we're also uh, we talked about the fix next campaign. We're very proud of that. Um, you know, that's, that's been great success. Uh, we're now partnering with uh, ATF on another initiative called Operation Secure Store. So ATF came to us a little while back and, and, and uh, identified a, a troubling uh, trend where <clears throat> burglaries of gun stores were on the rise. And they were stealing, you know, more and more guns from these burglaries. Uh, but, you know, some pretty significant increase, primarily gang activity, um, they, you know, 75% of the guns that they were stealing were handguns, and those guns hit the street. I mean, it's not, you know, these are bad guys. And <clears throat> so we've been working with ATF on Operation Secure Store to raise awareness within the dealer community to, you know, that this can happen to you. Um, and, you know, what steps can you take that are appropriate for your business to reduce the risk, like... Can you put the guns away in a gun safe? Can you put uh, put them in smash resistant display cases? You know, have uh, you know closed uh, circuit you know TV monitors and cameras, and make sure you've got you know solid locks on your doors and things like that. But I mean, it's it's um, you know what we see is you know the bad guys will take a truck, steal a truck, and drive it right through the front door. Or you got bars and gates on the window or bollards in the front. They'll just hook up a chain, 
put it on it and, and blow it right off, or they come in, from, they'll break in to the nail salon or something next door, and they'll go in through the, the wall. They'll just punch through the wall uh, or through the roof. I mean, all kinds of you know ways of getting in. They're in and out in a short period of time and steal you know a lot and steal a lot of guns. Fortunately, the most recent information that we've gotten with ATF is uh, that you know we've bent the curve and uh, the rate of these is starting to go down. The number of guns stolen is starting to go down. And ATF believes that's been in part to the cooperative effort to get the word out to dealers that they're reacting in a, in a responsible way to protect their inventory from being stolen. I mean, I really applaud ATF. Whenever this occurs, they respond. Even if it's one gun that's stolen, they come in force. They respond right away. They work with the retailer, you know, and they try to recover the guns as quickly as they can. And as part of this effort, if ATF puts out a reward for information, NSSF will match that reward. So instead of like a $5,000 reward, it's now 10000 Oh, really? <clears throat> and that's a check I don't mind writing, you know. Um, and we do write those checks from time to time, but we're happy to do that because it, it means you're getting the bad guys. And we're very happy to see when these guys get sentenced, uh, you know, they really get, uh, they get hammered. The judges put them away for a long time. Uh, as part of that, on the NSSF side, uh, we're supporting legislation called the uh, firearms, uh, the Federal Firearms Licensing Protection Act, which would increase the maximum penalty that someone could get uh, in prison for stealing guns from a, a licensee from 10 years to 20 years and impose mandatory minimums for burglaries and robberies. Robberies, fortunately, are still pretty rare, um, but you know we've seen uh, homicides of, of retailers in the commission of a robbery. Um, so that's concerning. And we worry that, that, you know, if you sort of harden the store, then they'll just come in during day daytime and commit a robbery. So we're really worried about that. Although you would think robbing a gun shop would be a special kind of stupid, <laughs> but yeah. it does happen. Uh, fortunately, pretty rare. So we're working on that legislation. It's, um, good, uh, you know, we hope to have it reintroduced in the House soon. And, and Senator Graham introduced the letter legislation in the past in the Senate. And, we, we believe he'll reintroduce it again. We're trying to build support for that. We think that's a, you know, that's not a gun control bill. That's a pro-law enforcement, pro-safety bill. We, the support of all the major law enforcement groups in the country behind that. So we're really, really proud of that. And the other newer, uh, fairly new initiative we've been working on uh, is with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is the largest suicide prevention organization in the country. They actually came to us to partner with us to try to help address the issue. And as, as I think you probably know, about 60% of gun deaths are suicides. And so that's, you know, most people don't even hear like, you know, X number of gun deaths, two thirds of those are, are suicides, um, which is a, is a terrible, terrible thing. 50% uh, of suicides involve a firearm. And when a firearm is used, uh, commit suicide it, it's it's lethal and effective about 85 percent of the time so the american foundation for suicide prevention has a goal that we're helping them to reach they want to reduce um, suicides by 20 percent by 2025 and the only way they can impact that or reach that goal is by addressing firearms related suicides because of so many of them are committed with or done with firearms so we're working with them to get information out to ranges and retailers um you know, through the, they have state chapters, and we're in our outreach to our members and other, and even non-member retailers, we give it to anybody. You know, how you know what are the things you can be on the lookout for? 
you know, what do you do if it happens? And, and, and unfortunately, it ran, you see it happening. It ranges from time to time. And it's very troubling uh, for the people that work at the range when this happens. It's very difficult. I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, most of the time the person doesn't, you know, they don't come in wearing a sign, obviously. So it's a challenge, but uh, it encourages people, not, you know, gun owners, you know, the information that goes across the counter to the consumer to have that difficult conversation. If you see somebody, you know, you're close with, a family member or a friend, you think is struggling, that might be depressed, um, had a, a a death in the family, you know, bad news on medical or they lost their job or something like that or just struggling financially, you know, to reach out, to offer assistance, to, you know, try to point them in a the direction where they can get help. I mean, there's lots of suicide prevention hotlines and things like that. So just to try to encourage people to have that conversation. If somebody is struggling, you know, maybe it's somebody in your family, you know, if your firearms aren't locked up when not in use, you know, maybe you should do that. Maybe you should take the firearms, offer to take the firearms from somebody if, if they're, to, you know, and a lot of times we hear that people say, yeah, just take them for me, like, because I'm in a, you know, in a dark place or whatever. So, you know, just encouraging people to have that conversation, offer help, try to just make sure that firearms are not, you know, you want to reduce access to lethal means. And that's what it's really about. Working with the Veterans Administration on the same thing, obviously we all know about, you know, uh, returning veterans, about 22 a day commit suicide, again, often with firearms. So we're working with the Veterans Administration on suicide prevention as well. We've worked with them in the past uh, with ChildSafe and provided, you know, hundreds of thousands of Project ChildSafe kits to the Veterans Administration that, and they gave them to returning vets while we were drawing down from, from Iraq and Afghanistan in big numbers. So we're very proud of that. And, and we're continuing to work with them on on their new initiative to try to help address the suicide issue with veterans. So it's, you know, kind of teaming up with, and, and we're, uh, after um, the shooting at the school in uh, Texas, uh, in Santa Fe, uh, we work with the governor's office to bring child safety to the state. And we've actually received a million dollar grant or in the process of receiving a million dollar grant from the state of Texas to run Project Child Safe in, in the state of Texas as part of Governor Abbott's response to that tragedy. So we, we, we do a lot. I mean, you know, people don't know we do these things. I mean, we're, you know, uh, but we're trying to make sure policymakers understand that the industry is, is proactive, pursuing real solutions to make f for safer communities. I was having a conversation there night about uh, suicide, and I've lost a very close friend, and our, our our buddy Jay recently lost a close friend, and he was saying that to the annoyance of his other friends now, he's always checking in with people, right, and 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 pushing a little bit, and how right. you doing? How you really doing? Because he says now he was so blindsided by it, um, that he's nervous now of like missing. Missing cues, right? Exactly. Among his friends and colleagues, he said it made him like he now lives in this world of being like very aware of where where people are around you. Yeah, you hear that? Like people say, "I never knew. I wish I had asked. I wish I knew." Yeah, yeah. He it's, wonders you know, if he had missed something, and he doesn't want to miss yeah. something next time. You know, and look, a lot of times it's the person that chooses to do this. It's their own firearm, so yeah. there are you know limitations is what you can do, but. You know, if you're the, you know, uh, 
parent and you've got, you know, a, a young adult or a teenager in the house and, you know, you think that it might be an issue, make sure your firearms are secured and not accessible. You know, make sure the keys aren't out there or they, or they don't know the combination or, or even like, to, you know, have your buddy hold the firearms and, uh, you know, if you think, and that's not anti-gun, right? We're not saying ban guns. We're not saying, just be responsible. Oh, that's per that's like common sense personal storage stuff i mean like or personal choice right we once we had young kids i don't want to say that i didn't used to store guns carelessly because it was things that were in my own secure home right we were just grown-ups living in home in a home once we had kids different story yeah because they're very like you know they're really interested in what their dad's interested in and so we had to adopt um for now we have a four-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, we had to adopt a pretty, I don't want to say rigid, but we, we adopt a system that's twofold where we do a locked cabinet and then in the locked cabinet, we do trigger locks. And, it's, and it took a while to train myself to not be lazy now and then. Right. Because it's like, oh, yeah, you're in a situation where you're working on something or cleaning it. And then something comes up and you got to go do something and like force yourself to stick to your own system that you have put in place when you have young kids around. Uh, and that's the, thing, that's the thing I like about Project Child Safe. Is that it, it's, it's like you're speaking to gun owners, but in friendly terms and not, you're, you're coming at them from friendly terms and not like condemning what their decisions they've made right. or condemning them as a person. But you're saying like, I understand where you're at. Um, right. here are some tools and practices to achieve what I know is your right. concern. And there's no one size fits all. I mean, if someone has a firearm that's for personal protection and they want it accessible, then there are ways you can approach that. You know, um, a lockbox, quick access lockbox that come in biometrics now or combinations. And that's one approach. But every firearm is capable of being secured, right? One yeah, way or another. Like, there's, yeah, there's plenty of ways. I think there's plenty of ways for families to find a system that works for them. And I think just the simple fact that you're aware of the issue and thinking about it um, is, is a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, just- the, the great irony <clears throat> recently that we've seen with, it, with uh, I guess, <laughs> flattery is, uh, what does that they say about you know, the uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery? What we have seen, it's not really, this isn't really uh, imitation, but what we've seen is uh, gun control groups like Moms Demand Action getting Project Child Safe locks from the local police department and then like packaging them with their anti-gun literature and distributing those. Oh, is that like, right? Yeah, and like taking pictures and being proud of it. And we've like had to go back to our law enforcement partner and say, you know, <laughs> that's not really what this is about, right? Like we... We appreciate that they care about safety, and it's pretty ironic because here's a group that's funded by a multi-billionaire, and we say all the time, you know, the, the gun control groups, they don't have any programs. They just, you know, they don't. They don't actually do anything. They don't have a, a gun sa- any gun safety initiatives. And one of the reasons Child Safe is, I think, so successful and, and why this American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has approached us is, you know, as the industry, we have we have license to talk to gun owners, right? They'll listen to us, right? I mean, if if a gun control group, you know, hands out a lock, it, it's gonna, you know, they don't they don't want a lock on a gun. They don't want the gun, right? Like they say, get the gun. There shouldn't be guns in the house. But <clears throat> so, in, in the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is like, you know, 
we need you guys, we need your help to communicate to gun owners. How do we communicate to gun owners? How do we get this message across without offending them or turning them off, you know, so that they will listen to the message? Uh, you know, and, and so that's, you know, why I think that program is, is successful and will be successful. Yeah, it's a good one. All right, we've taken up a ton of your time. That's all right. We have, a thing called, we have a thing called concluders. <laughs> Pivot to the conclusion. <laughs> do you want to conclude? You want to throw on? You don't do, it's not mandatory. You don't need to do a concluder. No, it's a good conversation. It's good to spend time with you. We got to visit very briefly in New Hampshire at that uh, conference, but uh, but that's the first time we've really had a, a chance to have a conversation. So I welcome it. It's fun. That's your concluder? Yeah, why not? My concluder is that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to reciprocate with my concluder. And I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to take time and walk through a lot of the stuff. I think that we covered a lot of things that are probably pretty unfamiliar. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Nobody knows, nobody knows a, a tenth or they know a tenth of what you guys do and not yeah. the other nine tenths. There's also the problem where there's stuff you think you know and you realize there's a little more to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have a great, uh, great group of people that work at the National Shooting Sports Foundation, really passionate about what we do and uh, dedicated to serving our members. And you know, we're really proud of our, um, all these, you know, what we say, real solutions for safer communities, you know, and, and representing the industry um, in state capitals all across the country and here in Washington. Um, you know, the, the challenge never ends. Um, I got one more question though. Any chance you guys can move shot out of Las Vegas? Uh, no, <laughs> not likely. Uh, we're we're there, um, you know, for for many years. We we've got signed contracts going out, and as I said, we, we're I don't know if we talked about it on the air before, but uh, next year we'll uh, take space in MGM, and the year after that we'll take space in. Um, a building that Caesars is putting up, the Caesars Forum, will go from just under 700,000 square feet to just under a million. And no, I'm sorry, it's not open to the public. <laughs> Mark, you got any concluders? I think probably one of the funnest things, that, you know, I, I really enjoy working here with NSSF. Like I was explaining to you kind of before we started talking uh, on the show, uh, you know, I get to, I get to work, talk about hunting and guns all day. I mean, it's, it's a passion of mine. But, uh, you know, the fun thing about it is, is those of us who kind of, as, as I've gotten into this world and I've, I've worked in it and I've talked to the other people who are kind of in this world, uh, we work all day so everyone else gets to go hunt and shoot. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I wish I got to get out and hunt and shoot more. Yeah. I, I really do. I don't so do it true. nearly as often as I want. So, so I, you know, for everyone who's listening to the podcast, for me, Get out and hunt and shoot because that's that's what I'm working every day for you guys to do. So I want you to go out and hunt and shoot. If you if you have a hunting season and you have something you can go out and hunt, go out and hunt it today. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if if you can't hunt something today, get your gun and go down to the range and get better at shooting. So that's yeah. pretty funny because so many guys write in about wanting to be like in you know quote the industry, and I'm like man, you know a lot of the people I know that do the spend the most time outside are not in the industry. <laughs> yeah. You can, I, you can, I, industry, I, you can still, industry your way out of the woods. I'm still looking for that very rich uncle who's going to let me just hunt and fish all day. So. The number of times people have said, oh, you must get to go hunting all the time. I'm like, actually, no, like hardly ever. Yanni? Uh, yeah, I'll just conclude with thank you for what you guys do. I appreciate you guys making opportunities for me to hunt and fish all the time. So, um, 
Yeah. Right. No, we love we love to see what happens on the show. And we love to, to hear yeah. what's happening on the podcast. So we get to live a little vicariously through your adventure. So thanks for yeah. sharing with the world. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today.